Today on the show, Keith Tishkin joins me. He's a former professor of mine from uh, Towson University, one of maybe three or four or five, that I think really had an impact on my life. Uh, we talk about his life, his uh, career, uh, the road that led to him teaching, uh, including uh, his passions for photography and sound design, uh, going to see films at, uh, at nearby theaters, kind of just his, uh, his road to college, grad school, and then Baltimore, where I finally met him uh, at Towson University in the early 2000s. Um, two of the classes that Keith taught uh, became passions of mine. Um, I didn't know it then, but I was really gravitating to the type of movies that these two classes covered. One of them was New Hollywood, uh, also uh, rarely called this, but I actually like the, the title American New Wave uh, for its connotations, obviously, to the French New Wave. But um, New Hollywood kind of covers the late 60s to the early 80s before summer blockbusters and Hollywood blockbusters became the, the main thing that we see in cinemas. Um, these are smaller, uh, meandering, um, uh, personal films um, that often uh, are open-ended. They're, they're not a clear story. They don't have a clear na narrative. Um, and uh, there's a lot of character stuff. There, it was a great time for, for acting for performances. It was a great time for, for visual um, uh, experimentation. Um, it's a really enticing time period. It was something that, uh, you know, obviously including uh, uh, actors uh, like, uh, like uh, Al Pacino and uh, Gene Hackman and Warren Beatty and Jeff Bridges and De Niro and all this. A lot of uh, big actors that, uh, that made their bones in the 70s. But also filmmakers. We're talking about Terrence Malick who went on to uh, do Days of Heaven and Michael Cimino, obviously, Francis Ford Coppola um, and uh, Martin Scorsese, all of these uh, directors that we kind of touch on in that uh, in that part of the interview. The second class and the second passion of mine that uh, that Keith really uh, got me onto and started digging into was uh, David Lynch. He did a uh, film analysis class and we cover that and we talk about David Lynch, we talk about his films, uh, his, his type of quirkiness. Um, and uh, we also talk about Twin Peaks. It's a show that I rewatched recently, and I remember talking to Keith online about it. It was something that I wanted to bring him on the show to talk about. So, uh, David Lynch, New Hollywood, and everything you ever wanted to know about Keith Tishkin today on the Debatable Podcast.
Right. <laughs> this is, I had an extended conversation last night about, oh gosh, about 4.30 in the morning, there's a guy that I've become friends with on Facebook. Nice. Where I, somebody I don't know. We just belong to the same sort of Detroit rock and roll group on Facebook. Nice. And he's into movies, and he lives in Arizona, and so we, he had started talking about The Counselor. So I was doing this back and forth with him about The Counselor, right. and because uh, he was really, uh, he really liked it a lot, and um, so I was kind of probing with him, kind of like those those issues that you raised, since I haven't had a chance to see it, because it's not, um, I don't think Netflix has it. I saw it in yeah, not yet, stored uh, it at Walmart. Walmart has it, but Netflix doesn't appear to have it. Right. There were there were a bunch of people that I've that I've talked to that I I find have similar tastes, and they uh, you know the the ones that find you know seventies uh, cinema especially uh, really something that they gravitate to, and it's such an odd bird you know to come out uh, right now in this atmosphere. Yeah. I mean, if it's not a, a Marvel superhero movie, of course it's going to get slept on. I think so. Uh, the people, people that, really hate it, though. Yeah, hate oh, yeah. It. Yeah, with vitriol. Hate yeah. it. Absolutely. Um, he compared it to, um, oh, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Yeah, I can that see that. what came to mind with him. Yes, oh. I can see that. I, I feel like it's very elliptical. It, 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 if, if, if you are used to a traditional story, and I don't even mean just straight up fed to you. I, I mean just a straight right. up story. It's just, it's not, it's not uh, narratively coherent the way that people are used to. Well, he, th- he also thought too that, that kind of Ridley was making a Tony Scott film. Yeah, I can see that. It's, that, it's, that it's not was, too far uh, off from, from a domino or something like that. Yeah, that's the, he said domino. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I can totally see that. Um, yeah, so I mean, this is pretty pretty traditional format for the show. We kind of talk about um, people's origins, especially for the first time on the uh, on the show, and and certainly, okay. you know, I wanted to have you on the on the program because uh, we, you know. You've been a, you've been an influence in in my life and the things that I've uh, I've gravitated to uh, since being in college and I you know I, I put you in a in a uh, uh, a group of maybe two or three professors that I had throughout college uh, both at Anne Arundel Community College and at Towson that uh, you know the 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 uh, syllabus the work that that we did in class the the movies that I was exposed to really kind of uh, opened my mind uh, to to other things other subjects to explore and um we're going to get into it later on in the uh, in the okay. show about those those particular classes because those are those are ones that I definitely want to pick your brain about but um okay. let's kind of talk about where you where you started let's talk about how you grew up and where you where you grew up and and what what your what your journey was to to film or art or or culture, what what was what were the things that paint paint the picture? Let's start with where with where you you grew up and what kind of family you had. Okay, okay. Um, I grew up in suburban Detroit, uh, probably got seven eight miles out of the city limits per se. Um, so it was kind of like a you know a, a, sort of your idyllic 60s suburban setting. Right. You know, where kids could roam around, you know, there wasn't too much concern about safety and stuff like that. We were f- pretty free to come and go throughout the day. 
and uh, you know we just had to turn up every once in a while at home. <laughs> um, so it, you know it's nothing like it, nothing like it is today. Sure. Um, but I myself was the youngest of four. I had three older brothers and sisters. How how, um, how much older were they than you? I had one brother that was eleven years older, a brother that was ten years older, and a sister that was five years older. Wow! So, so you really you really are the baby. I really yes, very much so. Yeah. Um, and on a on a kind of funny side note, um, the neighborhood where I grew up was immediately behind where Jimmy Hoffa was last seen alive. <laughs> wow! Uh, we had moved from there by then, but I mean, literally, we were you know, a football field away from the restaurant where he disappeared from. (laughs) Wow. Um, As far as growing up, I was in Catholic school from 2nd to 11th grade. So, you know, I'm your classic Catholic schoolboy, you know, kind of taught by nuns. Gotcha. Uh, Because back in the day, we had basically just about all nuns, handful of, you know, maybe just uh, one or two. I don't even know if I had one. I had maybe one um, uh, lay teacher, and the rest were all nuns. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, was it a strict? Grew, uh, was it strict when you went there? Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, corporal punishment, the whole, you know, the whole business. They didn't, you know, you know, if they wanted to whack you, they whacked you. You know, I got, I got my fair share of whacks. Were you a good? Um, were you a good kid overall? Um, I would, I was undiagnosed ADD. Let's say. I, I mean, I was, I was all over the map. I mean, you know, I, you know, I was that kid. I, I'm trying to think of a movie of those kids that you know. With every question, raise their hand. Couldn't right. shut up. Right. <laughs> that was that was that was pretty much me, and you know that got me in um, all sorts of little bits of trouble. But I was sure. never in big trouble, let's sure. say. Um, uh, and in the, the place where I grew up, I mean, you know, the, there's kind of you know odd little you know tales that we can cross over. Like, for example, like two miles away, Sam Raimi grew up. Uh, oh, wow! Nearby. Um, in a little town that was like, you know, like I said, about two miles away. Mm-hmm. We weren't in the same school system, and to the best of my knowledge, we never crossed paths. Um, but we might have played in the same little league, sure, <laughs> uh, because I played little league where he lived. Nice. Um, and then we had people like um, uh, Elmo Leonard lived nearby. Um, yeah, I've been. Uh, I remember you talking. Were you talking to his son on Facebook? He, well, I went to school with his son and. Um, his daughter-in-law I also went to school with, and um, I didn't I didn't know him, you know, at the time, but I was always proud of the fact that he lived in Birmingham at that time, because right. they went to the same church that was associated with the school gotcha. and stuff like that. Um, but there's also Cream Magazine, which was, you know, the kind of irreverent rock magazine that I grew up with. Right on. And a whole slew of other, you know, sort of creative people they were kind of growing up around the same time. Um, like Marshall Crenshaw mm-hmm. grew up, you know, maybe three miles away. And, um, gosh, I'm trying to think, uh, I can't think of his last name, Paul, uh, Paul Feig. Oh, nice. That he was, you know, another one that nearby, you know, maybe five, six miles away. But all these people are kind of like, you know, contemporary, not any people that I ever met, but, you know, kind of come out of the same atmosphere. Right. Um, so I mean, it was you know, Detroit was a really creative place, and the thing that was kind of unusual about it was that most everybody had to leave there to make it. I mean, Elmore right. Leonard's probably about the only one that didn't, but most everybody else, whether they're writers or making movies or making music or whatever, pretty much everybody at one time or another had to leave the city, and you know, I left the city as well. Do you think it was um, just not fertile for the arts that you had to? have a, a real nine-to-five job to, to make it there? 
Well, it was it was fertile to a point, but then you know there wasn't anywhere to go from that. I mean, they shot. They actually, when I lived there, um, they shot more film in Detroit than they did in New York. Oh wow! Uh, but they but it was all industrial work. Right, right, right. So after L.A., the most film was shot in Detroit. Gotcha. Um, but it was all for these little industrial films, you know, to promote cars and things like that. Mm-hmm, right. Um, so that was a whole other little world. I, I had, a, what, one job? I think when I got out of high school, I was kind of curious about the whole film thing. I think it was after, no, no, after college. I, and the summer after I graduated from college, I kind of explored whether, you know, I wanted to see if I wanted to, do, to work in film. And I grabbed one film job for, you know, one of these little industrial films. And then I ended up shooting off to school. Nice. So what was it? Uh, so what were your parents doing? What, what did they do uh, as you were growing up? What were they? What were they into? My mom was very nuts and bolts. My dad was more of the you know more of the dreamer type. Mm-hmm. Um, he always liked to ponder how things worked, and had quite a bit of engineer in him. I mean, if he could have gone to school like advanced school, he probably would have become an engineer. Would be my guess. Right. He just was kind of a self-taught engineer. Right. Um, and later, kind of like tinkered with architecture and stuff like that. Um, but in his background, like when he was a kid, he made model airplanes and sailboats from scratch. Wow. And uh, eventually, like when he's maybe, oh, I don't know, maybe 14, 15 years old, uh, he built his own car from spare parts. Nice, nice. That he used to drive around town down in Florida where he grew up. Nice. Um, but that's, you know, that's, that's, you know, the kind of person he was. Did that funnel down to, uh, to you kids? Was there an interest that you were going to be... Uh... You know, that you had this interest in automotive or you were, uh, you know, kind of, at, you know, kind of being ready to, to go into sort, sort of factory line work? No, 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 not really. I mean, you know, when you, when you mentioned the factory thing, I mean, for a lot, of, a lot of kids growing up in Detroit, that was the path. Right. I mean, that's, you know, that's where the, the money jobs were. Yeah. You know, it was pretty mind-numbing work, but you could make really good money doing it. Sure. Um, but... You know, since my dad wasn't really tied into the auto industry, it was kind of rare. You know, they, they maybe did the odd job for auto industry, but, you know, they, they were as likely to, to make machines for companies in Japan as they would be for, uh-huh. you know, companies in Detroit. Gotcha. Um, you know, kind of because of that, I was kind of removed from all the auto stuff. You know, the other people I grew around with weren't, and they had jobs from mm-hmm. their, through their parents, you know, like summer, you know, good-paying summer jobs and stuff like that. I didn't really have access to any of that. Gotcha. So I was kind of removed from that kind of stuff. Gotcha. But his his creative activity took there was there was some impact. But um, he was he was rather old when I was born, sure. and so like um, his interest in photography had kind of waned by the time I was born. Mm-hmm. It kind of took place when my brothers and sisters were young. Right. Um, but by the time I was born, he wasn't really doing much with the photography. Everything was pretty much filmed by then right. for him. The the whole art thing took took some time to emerge because I didn't really see that side of him until like I oh you know when I was maybe a, a young teen I'd start digging around in the boxes in the basement oh I see and I'd find this stuff that he used to do gotcha were um, you immediately interested in this as a as a teenager is that really kind of the the uh, the seed of kind of your interest in in photography or film um, to be honest, not really. I mean, if I if I if I had to kind of take you up through the the, the early part of things, I'd probably say um, I was really small as a kid. Mm-hmm. I didn't cross five foot until uh, like probably late sophomore year in high school. Wow, okay. 
So I was always under four. So I was part of the small crew at school. Right, the Pee um, and, and that, you know, that gets you a lot of grief. Sure. Um, but despite being small, I was always into sports. Sports were my kind of first passion. And intermingled with sports, I had kind of a passion for music that came and went. Right. You know, came and went and came back again. And so it was kind of in and out until I became really a full-fledged teenager. And then the sports kind of drifted away, and then it was all about the music. What were these uh, formative years? When were you in high school? Maybe 68. Okay. 67, 68, somewhere in there. Gotcha. Now, in terms of other stuff, I mean, as a kid, and maybe this is true of all kids, I mean, I was really into comedy. Oh, yeah. And so, in terms of, like, visual stuff, it you know started out with the Little Rascals and the Three Stooges, <laughs> and then, the, then went over into the Monkees. Right. Um, and then the Marx Brothers, and eventually moved on to... Uh, Woody Allen. Oh, yeah. I, I had a real passion for Take the Money and Run. I mean, I thought that was like one of the greatest movies I'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought it was incredible. And actually, the Beatles, well, not the, not both Beatles movies, Help, specifically, mm-hmm. was the one that me and my cousin loved. But it was like, you know, it was basically like these comedies. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, I had a certain facility for drawing, and I kind of focused on drawing cartoon characters. Right. And that was kind of a big thing in school, because if you didn't fit into sports... Then the other kind of community you fell into were kids that could draw. Yeah. And especially if they could draw, you know, cartoons. That's interesting. And so my, my pals in, in high school, at least my initial pals, were all people that were kind of into cartooning. Gotcha. Um, and so I, was, I kind of fit in there. And in terms of that kind of stuff, um, started out with Peanuts mm-hmm. and then moved on to Mad Magazine and then on to National Lampoon. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, so it kind of followed that pattern. Not any and traditional, of, not any traditional comics. Not that I can, you know. I mean, it was really more, you know. I, I it was really the, at least at the outset, it was really the peanut stuff that I loved. Interesting. Okay. Um, and then it was, but it was mostly the funny comics. I was not, you know, I wasn't a Superman kind of guy yeah. or anything like that. Right. The only, um, the one comic book figure that I liked was the Flash. Mm-hmm. That was the that was the one figure that that jumped out at me like this guy's cool. Yeah, right. I like the Flash. <laughs> um, and then it's, it, to, to just throw in a couple of other things that that came to mind was we used to sit around and listen to Bill Cosby records. Oh yeah. And then yeah. we'd act out some of the characters. They were very big when I was, but that was kind of pre high school. That would have been like, you know, maybe sixty three, sixty four, somewhere mm-hmm. in there. Right. Um, and then. The one thing that we always used to play when we did fantasy play was Star Trek. Nice, nice. And uh, the character that I always played in Star Trek was Chekhov. I always <laughs> wanted to be Chekhov. <laughs> you wanted to be the, the the man behind the chair, huh? Well, I, I think it was more because, you know, um, my last name is Russian. Yeah. He was Russian. So gotcha. That was, that was and, <laughs> and I've always, I, I to tell you the truth, I've always liked the people that everybody else didn't like. Yeah. You know, it's like I kind of gravitated to my own heroes. So, like, <laughs> nobody knew like the Flash, so I could like the Flash. You know, everybody else likes Spock or like, right. you know, Captain Kirk or something. I'll like Chekhov because right. nobody else likes Chekhov. Kind You're of paving thing. your own way even early on. That's interesting. He yeah, was... I mean, yeah, I mean, with a lot of stuff. I mean, even teams that I root for and stuff, you know, they're always like the losers, the oddballs. Right. And, you know, every once in a while they might win, but, you know, 
it was kind of, I've always had a pattern of, you know, the underdog. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's difficult nowadays because you say that and, and kind of the, the naysaying quality of, of anyone's uh, personality is usually labeled as a hipster. Oh, maybe I don't, you know, I never, um, you know, I might've been a freak. I don't know if I was a hipster, but <laughs> I mean, I, I could certainly, Different you know, times. in the context of this, maybe share a story or two of that if you want me to. Sure, but, surely. So, um, you know, basically, so if we move on, let's say we move into like the late sixties here when I'm, I'm heading off to, to uh, high school. Right. Um, like I said, I was a bit of a misfit and, you know, and I was, and I had certainly had probably some pretty serious undiagnosed ADD, ADD. Sure. You know, I just got, uh, I got knocked around a few times, but because I went to, uh, you know, Catholic high school again, so we had all brothers then. Mm-hmm. And I got knocked around pretty good. There, oh, yeah. I, I'd just be all over the place. And, you know, it wasn't much for them to come around and haul off and hit me across the face. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Because um, you weren't focused. Was, you were an anxious kid. You were all over the place. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, well, see, the thing is, in school, I didn't, I could do okay without working very hard. So mm-hmm. I, I also got bored real easy. Right. Because, you know, I had a certain facility with, you know, just the academic part. But I wasn't great. I mean, we had we had some people that I went to school with that were great. Yeah. I mean, that were just brilliant. I wasn't I wasn't like that, but I could always just kind of get by. Right. You know, I could get my A's and B's without really having to struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, because I I just think you know most of the time I was just playing bored. I just yeah. wasn't engaged because, you know, my mind was already racing. You know, seventy miles an hour past whatever it was that they were talking about, and on to thirty other different things that I was thinking right. about. So, I mean, basically, you know, like I said, uh, you know, I started to move away from sports and, you know, school-wise, it basically I moved into getting interested in stuff like history, political science, and the arts. Right. Um, and the one thing that was different about when I grew up, the drinking age was 18. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I, when I was finished, or after, just after I finished up high school, you know, I could go out and yeah, so I definitely. could go to bars, I could go to clubs, I could go see bands and socialize. Right. And so that kind of created a whole, you know, whole different environment for me. It opened up a whole world where I could go out and meet these people from different parts of town. Mm-hmm. Because Detroit is really, really large and really, really segmented. Right. So somebody from, I was from the northwest side of town. It was years before I met anybody from the west side of town or the east side of town or anything like that. We just didn't cross paths right. until... I became of age, and then there were these central points where you go to a club or something like that, or when I went on to college. And stuff. Right. So, you know, basically through high school, it was, you know, it was a little bit of art. There was a little bit of painting there, but mostly like cartooning stuff, and and definitely music. Mm-hmm. And film didn't really enter into things until my junior year of college. That's where it kind of entered the picture. Got you. But to that point, when you're growing up, you're you're not watching a lot of movies, or you are? Or... Well, I mean, I, I am, but like I said, mostly comedies. Right. You know, that was that was really the thing, and maybe, you know, the you know kind of like the stuff that every kid went to see, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's war movies. Well, actually, I grew up on war movies. Right. As a kid, now that I think about it, as a kid, what I loved were war movies. Right, right. Are we talking um, about John Wayne here? Not so much John Wayne. More, I, I'd say more like a Humphrey Bogart type of one. Oh, okay, right, right. You know, more of that that kind of high Sierra, know, the less the less heroic stuff. The, the John Wayne thing didn't seem to grab me. Right. I mean, I can still remember. I think it was 1962, going to see The Longest Day. Yeah. Which was one of those epic war movies with like the all star cast. Right. And, one of my father's you know, favorite movies. 
huge, huge widescreen, right? You know, of course, yep. I go to the movie, and I just got glasses like <laughs> a month or two before and forgot my glasses. And so everything on the screen was fuzzy. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't I mean, until... I, I don't think I've actually even seen it since. But, you know, but then, it, then it evolved into stuff like, um, gosh, like uh, the In Like Flint movies and uh-huh. my, Our Man Flint. Yeah. I love James Coburn. I was a huge James Coburn fan. Right on. Um, and so he, you know, he always had those kind of like, he wasn't quite a James Bond guy. He was, a, he was a wink, wink kind of James mm-hmm. Bond. Guy. Yeah, yeah, definitely tongue in cheek. Is I we yeah, actually really tongue in cheek? Yeah, we, we've had this. I mean, uh, and, and there's a really great movie with him that that falls into you know some of the things that you might want to discuss later called um, the President's Analyst. Yeah, yeah, right on. And I had seen that on TV, and it's just like whoa. <laughs> I didn't see that one in the movies. I saw that on TV. That's like, wow, this is bizarre. Yeah, right. So, what was the the journey to to film? You say junior year of uh, college. What did you? What, what what did it for you? Was it a film class? Was it a particular? Basically, when I I, I didn't have any interest in going to college at first when I finished high school. I was so disgusted with school, so frustrated. Right. Um, my you know I, I was I was wanting to be the rebel in in, in Catholic high school. And I was forever getting dragged out of the office. You know, how about a haircut tiger and all this stuff? And, you know, having to play all these games. And, you know, I, you know, I was I was a relatively innocent kid. Right? I, I didn't write this down. I just, just came to mind. But I was a relatively in, innocent kid when I was in Catholic high school, right? Mm-hmm. And we had this one little French teacher. And he was a little guy. And we used to call him Jiminy Cricket. Because <laughs> he wasn't, he wasn't, he was maybe 4'8", 4'9". <laughs> and... At first, he really liked me because I was kind of really gung-ho about learning my French and all that. But yeah. by the time I hit junior year, I was the complete rebel. <laughs> and I'd come in and I'd try and get away with wearing my hair as long as I could. And I always wore this uh, army jacket um, everywhere I went. And he became convinced that the reason why I wore it, this is, this is I, I still can't believe this to this day, but he became convinced that I was a heroin addict. <laughs> And that's why I wore this army jacket, so my arms didn't show. <laughs> <laughs> that's you know, an interesting this, this perspective. Is how, this is how bizarre things, things got in high school. Um, <laughs> so I was just so much about rebellion. I just had no interest in going to college. But then I worked for six months after I got out of high school, and I said, this sucks. Right. This really sucks. Um, yeah, but you have no, at this point, you have no... Uh, end game. You don't have a major. You just want to get out of I don't of there. have anything. Yeah, I'm right. just, I'm walking in there and the first class, <laughs> the first classes I grab are, you know, stuff that I was just sort of interested in high school, you know, like carryovers. Because yeah, yeah. my senior year was an utter waste because I, I changed <laughs> to public school my senior year uh-huh. and it was like two years ahead of the kids in public school. Right. And so I was taking, I had to take things like gym with the freshmen. <laughs> I had to take an English course that I'd taken two years before. I took typing. You know, it's just it was and, and art. And art was probably the only good thing that I took. Sure. But then, so when I went to college, it's like okay, well, I'll pick up. You know, I'll do some poli sci, the statistics. You know, I kind of interested in this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I took an art class, and that was the eye opener because here I walk in the first day art class, right? In the Catholic school boy, right. I walk in, and. We sit down and the, the the room's all grubby because it's full of charcoal dust and all sorts of crap like that. And we got our we got our some supplies with us and stuff. And so the teacher comes walking in. His name was Larry Rittenberg. Walks in. He's got a cigar in his mouth. He's holding a cup of coffee and it's like you know, you know that's the first shock. You know, you know, it's like 
I was in the other classes, but those are like a regular classroom. Right. You know, this is a place, no desks, right. you know, nothing. You know, it's like, you know, there's nobody standing in front of a blackboard. This dude just walks in with his <laughs> cigar and, you know, and it's going too because you can smoke in classes now. Oh, yeah. You can smoke in school. I used to, you know, smoke like a fiend during exams. <laughs> just chain smoke and just keep buttoning them out on the floor, you know. That, that changed, I think, by the time I graduated, but I think I got to smoke all through school. Wow, what an interesting um, time there. <laughs> so anyway, so he walks in, right, and, you know, with his, his cigar and his cup of coffee, and shortly thereafter, in walks behind him this woman in a robe, and she proceeds to just drop her robe, and he says, time to start drawing the figure. And I'm like, humana, 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 humana. <laughs> <laughs> there was nothing in the world that could prepare me for this. Oh, sure. Nothing. You had and no so, idea what like, you were getting into. No idea. <laughs> and so I decided this is the place for me. <laughs> this, is where I, this, is, this is where I belong. This is where I'm staying. And so that is how I became an art major. And what made it all work is like there was a couple people there that, you know, that took me under my wing, right. under their wing, you know, and by them kind of giving their blessing to me, basically saying I'm okay, you know, kind of worked me into the group, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wasn't the outsider. I was, you know, I got to be a part of the inside. So this and is a- that, was, that was really, you know, that was really nice. And I'm forever thankful to those people that, you know, kind of, kind of introduced me to, you know, that world. So this is a um, general art, thing, art major, though. It's a general, like, like painting I was and drawing. A, I was a studio art major. Gotcha. And what happened was, uh, end of my junior, or end of my sophomore year, which would have actually been midway through my junior year, but I started the semester late. Mm-hmm. So midway through my, uh, or at the end of my sophomore year, the art history department controlled the entire art department. Gotcha. And so they decided to just, cut the entire studio program. (laughs) And so here I am starting my junior year with basically in a dead major. Um, There was like for a semester to, well, for two semesters, there was two professors left out of four. And then the last semester, there was only one professor remaining. And it was the only guy I didn't get along with. Oh, no. Um, So that was (laughs) just like, you know, I just kind of like completely kind of fell away from the whole art thing, and so I picked up another major, right. and I ended up taking um, communications, which is where, you know, kind of, le- that more or less got me involved in film, but I, I, I'll sidetrack a second here. Um, end of my sophomore year, I started making little movies mm-hmm. uh, related to the art department, so I made, <laughs> I made my own weird little version of Jaws. Nice. I had two super cameras, right? Yeah. And I did it as a performance piece. Nice. I had a bunch of, I worked in a record store and I had a bunch of uh, uh, iron-ons of the Jaws uh, poster, like maybe right. about postcard size. Right. And so I made these t-shirts. I made four, a series of four t-shirts with these iron-ons. Uh-huh. And so I had these two cameras rolling, one on my face, one on my, you know, one on the entire bathtub. And I got out of the bathtub <laughs> and I proceeded to put on and off these t-shirts and go underwater and come back up and... You know, did the whole sequence over the, the three minutes of film. And then when I showed them, I, sh- I used two projectors and showed the two images side by side. <laughs> and that was my version of Jaws. <laughs> so that's, 
kind of where that, that started. I almost, it, it actually at the end of like, you know, sometime in junior year or maybe the end of sophomore year or something like that, I, I had an opportunity to maybe transfer to Cal Arts. And I just didn't think my parents had the money to, to help me go there. Mm-hmm. And so I just kind of bagged that idea. And that's kind of, you know, over the communications, I ran into some film people. And that's when I really started going whole hog on film. Right. But I mean, the roots of it were in the art department. I made, these, I made a few little goofy films that I showed there because we were a conceptual department. You didn't have a medium per se. Right. So I did a little painting, a little bit of sculpture. Oh, nice. Made these little films, you know, all this kind of stuff. That leaves the creativity um, up to you. That's nice. Yeah, it was, it was a great department. It's a wonderful department. I mean, I, I wish I could have done four years of that. We had great visiting artists that came through. I mean, real, you know, national powerhouse people. What was so the... anyway, that ended, and, and so I started doing the film thing. Right. And what enabled the film thing to happen was... My, I went to a place called Oakland University, which is just which is further out in suburban Detroit than than I lived or than I grew up. Mm-hmm. It was even further out, but about oh I don't know maybe an hour away is Ann Arbor, and at that time in Ann Arbor, where University of Michigan is, they used to uh, they had maybe two or three film societies going up there, right. and they would run double features every night of all these classics because there was no you know there was no videotape or anything. Right. The only way you could see stuff was to go see it on the screen. Right. And so I used to drive up there three, four times a week and go see these double features. Nice. And so I probably got to see a couple hundred movies in a year. Wow, yeah, yeah. And that became my, you know, that really became my film education, was now, what I saw in classes and then, you know, what I could run around, the new stuff I could see in theaters, and then going up there and kind of filling everything else in. Well, focusing on film now, I mean, are we talking about that you were... Your plan was to be a filmmaker, or was your plan to be writing about it, or, or you know, critically analyzing it? What, what was the, what was the major's, you know, focus? Um, well, it wasn't. It wasn't a major per se. It was just within the communications department. I took every film class that they had. Gotcha. I did. They had. They only had one little production course, and I did that. And then I did some like audio courses. And then mostly what I got were like the film theory, film history courses. Right. Um, that was the bulk of the offerings. And so that's what I was doing there. But when I went to decide to go to grad school, it was for filmmaking. Gotcha. That was what I was, that's what I was focused on at that time. Where did you go to grad um, school? The, the record store I was working in, the manager was getting moved to Syracuse. Nice. <laughs> and so I had a, you know, I could go to school with a job which made it easier yeah. to kind of like pitch to my parents like, oh, well, can you help me out? I'll, I'm going to right. be working full-time too. Right, right, right. So, so the focus, uh, you know, you're, you're seeing a bunch of movies that I'm sure you never saw before. Were you seeing uh, movies outside of, uh, obviously outside of American cinema, or were you just seeing a lot of classic films? I was seeing a little bit of everything. Um, you, you, know, you, you know, standard classics, but then, you know, more obscure stuff too. You know, right. a lot of, a lot of European cinema. Right. Um, and since we're talking, let's see, you know, time period-wise, you're talking, oh, like 75 to 77, mm-hmm. roughly. Right. Um, some of the stuff I had already seen in the theater, like, you know, uh, things like Shampoo or um, uh, Parallax View I saw in the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of some of the... You know, one thing I didn't go see in the theater was The Godfather. I had no interest in seeing The Godfather. <laughs> None. I never saw The Godfather, never saw The Exorcist. I mean, the really big movies. And that, right. you know, to tell you the truth, that kind of fit into my, you know, basic world view. Right. You know, I was with, you know, I wanted something that was less popular. 
right. more obscure. Right. So, I mean, I was even seeing weird stuff like, uh, gosh, there was some really crappy Frankenheimer film. Because everything was about the director, the director, the director. So I would right. literally go see anything, you know, director would make. And Frankenheimer was making something really awful with some goofy monster or something. I can't even was it the prophecy or something? It was something really goofy. But I mean, I was literally seeing, you know, I was literally seeing everything. Um, but, you know, like going up to Ann Arbor, it was mostly like, you know, the foreign stuff. I'm trying to think. If, so you're seeing it was French the Robert New Wave Festival, stuff. So I got to see a lot of the Altman stuff. Okay. I hadn't seen. Okay. Because um, he was there, and I, why I even went to go see him speak. Oh, wow. Um, you know, but the, yeah, you're, you're probably right. It was, it was mostly foreign stuff, a lot of really obscure foreign stuff. Right. I mean, but a you're lot seeing, of really obscure foreign You're seeing French New Wave stuff. You're, see, you're seeing stuff from Japan. You know, probably no Japanese. Right. Probably literally no Asian cinema. And, well, keep in mind, too, I'm also taking classes. Right. So I'm getting exposed to stuff like Breathless and, right. you know, Jules and Jim and stuff like that. Right. You know, at the same time. So I'm getting some stuff at school. Right. And then, you know, I'm supplementing that with more obscure stuff that I'm going up to Ann Arbor to see. And plus in town there is the Detroit Institute of Arts and they showed films down there. So I would get, you know, I would see some films from there. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, like I said, all the contemporary stuff that came out, you know, like I went to see Taxi Driver on the Wednesday that it opened. Nice. You know, sight unseen. I knew nothing about Morton Scorsese. <laughs> I mean, I was... You know, it was, it was pretty. It was a pretty stunning film to tell you the truth. Yeah. You know, in the afternoon on a, <laughs> you know, on a Wednesday, because I went to the first show. Because I always used to like to go to the very oh, yeah. first show, so nobody would tell me about it. Yeah, right. And right. so that was one of those sight unseen things that I just okay. Yeah, with no, that sounds kind of interesting. No What's frame of reference. That. Right. No frame of reference whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, on Wednesdays too, I used to pile up the movies. Like I'd, I'd make a schedule and go for you know maybe three different theaters. That's great. So I, you know, I find one theater I could go to at 1 o'clock, another theater I could go to at like 4 or 5 o'clock, and then I'd go see something else at like 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock or whatever. That's great. So and I'd line them up like that. So you you went to, to grad school for actual filmmaking, though. So what what, yeah. is that, what is that journey? What did you get from Syracuse, and then what happened after you, you got out of there? Um, well, I figured out by the time I got done with my classwork in Syracuse that I didn't want to make movies. You know? <laughs> 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 what was it? What was it that? So what? A, it, it's just it wasn't a it wasn't that it was a bad experience. It just was the commercial part wasn't for me. I'd worked some jobs. I had done let's say summer of 1980. Mm -hmm. um, I came home to Detroit. I had a contact to work in the stagehand union, make a lot of money mm -hmm. real fast. <laughs> and so I worked a bunch of things in Detroit for like a three week stretch. I made like I don't know three or four thousand dollars nice. in like three weeks. Nice. And I worked the Republican Convention. I worked the Metropolitan Opera. Uh -huh. I worked some rock concerts. I worked some plays. You know, I worked literally a, a little bit of everything. Right. And just from that experience, it's like, no, this is this isn't really. You know, between that and kind of what I sensed from the other stuff, I thought, you know, this really isn't what I want to do. Mm -hmm. This is just not quite what I want to do. There's not a living um, in it, is what you're saying. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just, it was like the kind of things that interested me about a film were not the kind of things I'd be doing as a job. Yeah, right, right. And so, uh, you know, my my areas of interest in terms of like, you know, the film program, my two specialties were sound and uh, um, titles. Right. That's kind of the two areas that I gravitated to. Mm -hmm. So I used to do titles for a lot of people's films. Mm -hmm. Um 
And I, uh, with, in terms of my own films, I would, you know, I kind of gather some footage, but then I would spend months and months and months constructing these these rather elaborate soundtracks using, you know, stuff I recorded off TV, right. stuff that I pulled off, you know, I'd go scour for records and find all these weird little bits of sound that I could mix together. Nice. And so, you know, my films were always shot silent with a created soundtrack. Right. Very so nice. That, those were my two big areas of interest. So I imagine in you as a, I imagine you as a, a young John Travolta in Blowout, minus minus hearing maybe a, a oh, yeah, yeah. assassination. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, to some degree, yeah, or like the conversation, you know, yeah. you know that that's the film that really caught my imagination because oh, yeah. so much of it takes place, you know, on the soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. But it's like I, I always had the feeling like you could take an image and you could do so much more with it. Sure. By. Um, what you did with the sound. Yeah. I mean, I realized very early on that you could just completely alter it. Yeah. Um, and I had a, a, a really good teacher that nobody in my department liked, but I liked this guy a lot. His name was Stan Alden. He ended up writing a couple of textbooks mm-hmm. on sound production. But I really got on well with him. I just plugged into everything that he was saying. But he wasn't cool. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he just wasn't cool. He was a very nuts and bolts guy. Right. But, you know, if... He really, he really liked the stuff that I did. I still remember the one compliment he gave me, gave me when I made my, when I finished my first film there. And he says he got to the end of me, looked at, looked at me, and said, "Now that's a sound film." <laughs> and I, you know, I, I carried that with me for you know nice. however many years since I've been there. But nice. Uh, and you, you know, didn't. That was a special compliment coming from him. And you didn't give him the credit for the pun, did you? <laughs> oh well, he wasn't doing. No, he he was he wasn't really. He was really meaning that like that I was really using sound in the yeah. film because most people don't. You know that. <laughs> you know when I was you know when I was teaching production at Towson, I mean that's the thing that I really tried to push people towards because most people, you know, just laid a piece of music over whatever yeah. footage they had. Yeah. Or if they had you know if they were shooting sync sound, uh-huh. you know, it was just whatever the sync sound was, and right. I was always trying to push them to you know, try to do so much more with the soundtrack because right. I thought it would always make their image better. Right. There was no soundscape or, or atmosphere to it. It was really, like exactly. you just said, it's like nuts and bolts, yeah. I think more people were interested in making almost music videos or cutting to music, you know? Yeah, well, it's the easy thing to do. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, and you, you'll find out that, um, you know, and I, this is something that I learned pretty early on, too, just, you know, in my own filmmaking was, that you can take any footage, right? You can throw a piece of music over the top of it. Mm-hmm. And there will be rhythms that just emerge out of that. Yeah. Unintended rhythms. Yeah. You know, the two things will start to click in some way or another. And if you fall in love with that, you think you've really done something, but you <laughs> haven't, because it'll work with virtually any piece of music right. that you make the effort to do that with. Right. You and, be- then, you know, that's what I, I learned, you know, I will have to tell you that in terms of an education, I learned so much about just thinking yeah. by doing that sort of discipline. Yeah. Because, you know, there was just so many things you had to consider and think through and possibilities and everything. Yeah. Um, but what frustrated me in the long run was that you could spend two years on a film and in the end you get one piece of work. Very true, yeah. And Absolutely. people would go, well, what else you got? Absolutely. And yeah, it's yeah. like, you know, I just, I needed more instant gratification. Mm-hmm. And that's where the photography part the photography shift came in because, you know, I could go in, you know, go and shoot and process and print, and I have a body of work right there. Right. 
without having to go through all the trials and tribulations you used to have to do with making a film. Because you could, you could sit there and you could show your film, spend six months on the soundtrack, build the whole thing up, right? Mm-hmm. You got 90% of the work done. But that last 10% was murderous. Yeah, sure. When you had to conform the, mm-hmm. the original to the work print and, right. and all that, I mean, it was just, it was, and it was expensive. It was yeah. expensive, and it was just mind-numbing work because you had to be so detail-oriented. Right. You just couldn't make a mistake or it would screw everything up. Right. And so that was, that was what was really, you know, that was what was really hard about that. You mentioned because you just had so little to show for it at the end. You mentioned photography, so that became was that something that that propped up again in in college? That was something that you in grad school. I mean, is that something that you you changed over to, or became yeah, more of a hobby? Over, I, I shifted over to photography, and that became kind of my main art form. Then from there, I mean, in part because you know, like I said. Right. You could produce, you know, he had a much. You could produce work much more easily, mm-hmm. um, in the sense like you go, you uh, you gather images, you print those images, you decide how to present those images, and boom, you've got like I said, you got to buy work. Gotcha. Rather than you know this this two year process of yeah, right. you know, trying to make a film, right. and you know far less expensive. And what I realized too is. Funny enough, when it came to images, I didn't think in terms of moving images. I thought in terms of still images. Mm-hmm. Now, I could think in terms of sound and their relationship to moving images and creating a soundtrack, but, you know, when I was really honest with myself, I really didn't think in terms of motion pictures. I thought in terms of still pictures. Yeah. And so, you know, that's where that evolution, you know, sort of evolved towards. There, there was a... In fact, when I left... Um, gosh, I don't even remember what exact point this was, whether it was after I'd gone to Houston or whether it was still in Syracuse, but there was this one job that came up that looked to me like my ideal perfect job in a school in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And they didn't end up hiring for the position, but it was like the perfect job because basically they they had kind of, it wasn't really a, a film program, it was kind of a hybrid program where the kids worked with static images and created soundtracks with them. Nice. And I mean, it was like it was like my perfect job. Yeah, yeah. Like, this, you know, this is this is my ideal job. You know, this is this is the job that I would always dream of having, and mm-hmm. then they didn't hire for it. And, oh man! And so that job didn't didn't transpire. But it was a really unique program. I've never seen another one since. And it was kind of pre-video. You know, everything was still on film. The sure. you know, video wasn't really much of a viable medium still. Sure. You know, then the um, actually Syracuse when I was there was a hotbed of video art. Oh yeah. Um, which is something that basically nobody knows about. I mean, its history has just been just buried away. Sure. But, but in, you know, with video art, everything used to unfold in real time. Mm-hmm. And no editing. Yeah. You know, so you'd have these hour-long video pieces with, you know, a camera that, you know, would just continually roll. And sometimes the camera would move a little bit, sometimes it wouldn't. Right. Um, but that was, you know, that was really the, the birth of... Um, you know, the birth of video art, and one of the major centers for that was Syracuse. Wow. They were one of the very first centers, but, you know, like I said, that that whole business with video art just kind of, like, got washed away. Yeah. You can't even, you know, most of it you can't even find anymore. This is this is kind of a a, a pinnacle of, of the avant-garde movement, too, right? So, are you seeing a lot, were you into experimental 
um, stuff, for, you know, branching out from your uh, your studio art background? Were you a fan of just installation and, and avant-garde art? Yeah, for the most part, yes. I mean, I can't say. I'm trying to think. When I went to Syracuse, I I I didn't. I did hang out with the film people, but I hung out even more with the art people. Right. And the art school there was very compartmentalized. So there were painters, there were sculptors, there were you know gotcha. people that you know there were video people. Everybody kind of stuck to their medium for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, so they didn't they didn't get as much of a chance to experiment as as perhaps you know other people did other places. Right. Um, but you know, in many ways that that. That whole that whole movement kind of fits very much in tune with, you know, the films of the seventies. Oh yeah. You know, things don't have an incredibly tight structure. Right. Things meander. Yeah. Things get off point, and you're not really concerned about it. You don't. You know, you like that room to breathe. You don't want the the, the thing coming at you a hundred miles an hour mm-hmm. all the time. Absolutely. You you, you want to kind of just immerse yourself in it and be there for a while, and and also too you want to roll in it. Right. And um, you know that that's something that that's an experience that that you know starting pretty much with maybe your generation or just before, they were never exposed to any of that. Sure. And you know it it kind of they didn't know how to deal with the, those right. kind of movies. Right. You know, movie that didn't tell you you know didn't spell everything out to you. Yeah. That right. you'd have to. Uh, like what happened? Yeah, it was it's like the end of five easy pieces, and he walked away. <laughs> well, what happened? <laughs> exactly. Well, exactly. You have to, you know, you have to take what you just saw, and you have to, um, you know, decide for yourself. You know, yeah. well, you know, wh- where do you think it's going? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's the part I always appreciated. I always appreciated having the freedom to kind of interpret, decide. You know, what yeah. I thought. You know, happened or where you know right. what happened after the film ended. That uh, that, that whole uh, idea of interpretation is kind of neutered by uh, you know they, we'll, we'll get into this later. By the time that okay. we to uh, you know my my generation especially by that t- by the time of Star Wars and uh, afterward, you certainly are not having this idea of interpretation, especially in American cinema, of of leaving it open to to the, the viewer or the audience member to kind of uh, also participate. It's all, you know, it's a passive experience uh, after Star Wars, you know. It's almost, it's going in your, your right. ears and your eye holes. And what you also find out, too, is, you know, in a lot of these films, the good guys don't win. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, know, you, you, you know, you just walk out of, you know, you'd walk out of some of these movies just devastated. Right. I mean, I, I still, I, you know, the one that stays with me is Days of Heaven. Yeah. Yeah. When, when Richard Gere gets shot and he hits the water and it goes, the theater goes to silence, I mean, I just felt like I was just hit in the stomach. Yeah. I mean, I was just, literally, I was just stunned. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there was, I'm trying to think, there's one other movie that was, oh, oh no, I was, thinking, I was thinking of the reverse experience of Carrie. You know, one, I felt like I was punched in the gut. The other one, I, I believe it's the only time in the theater that I just completely lost my shit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like, I sit there and then the, you know, that hand comes out of the yeah. ground and it's just, I have this thing about stuff coming up out of the ground. I don't know if it's from being, you know, from a kid or whatever. Sure. You know, it's like when in Apocalypse Now, when Martin Sheen comes out of that water. Yeah, right. That just wigs me out. It's just, you know, there's just, 
stuff coming from underneath just wake me up. When that hand reached up and grabbed her, it's just like, <laughs> and then the movie's over. It's like, yeah. Uh, and the lights come on. But uh, I had, Yeah, I saw that. Uh, I actually saw that for the first time not too long ago, actually. It was on my my list of shame for a long time. And oh. yeah, it, still, it still has uh, that, that uh, it certainly still has that effect. I was I was pretty pretty shocked by the end myself. So let's uh, kind of talk about just the the end here real quick. So what is the bridge between you know uh, the end of grad school into your life outside of college? Is that is it photography or how did how did uh, teaching come into it? I was in Syracuse. I was trying to finish up my degree. In the end, I never actually finished it. I just kind of got to a point where I just walked away. Gotcha. Um, because so it was it was, like, it was just it was just like Nicholson at the end of Five Easy Pieces. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I guess so, yeah. Yeah. Degree, yeah. I mean, it was just you know, it's like it was going to cost me thousands of dollars to make my print. Right. And I wasn't much of a writer then, and I still had to write a thesis, and I was struggling to get all this stuff done, and I was working a full time job. And I was just trying, I was, uh, all my friends had kind of moved on from Syracuse and I kind of kept going through waves of friends and I was just looking for a way to get out. Mm -hmm. And, um, I got an, I got an opportunity, I got a fellowship down in Houston in, uh, 1986, beginning of 1986. Gotcha. And that was my ticket out of Syracuse. And so I just packed up everything, threw it into storage space, grabbed what I needed, and back then, on People's Express, you could carry these really big boxes. Mm-hmm. So I basically moved my myself to to Houston on People's Express, <laughs> the airline. And I had these five giant boxes, and you know, me on the plane, and um, flew down there. I had I had some friends already there that I had been in school with that were already in that program. So while I was there, I got in there for photography, and at the end of the first sort of semester I was there, the woman that had been teaching photography was leaving to go to move to New York. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden they needed somebody to teach photography. And the head of the school said, you want to teach photography? I said, uh, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> and the funny thing about that is that I never had a photography class in my entire life. <laughs> I just kind of like, you know, I had a, I had a, guy, a good friend of mine that helped me out. Right and kind of told me whenever I needed to know it, you know, at various times. And that, you know, I just kind of figured it out as I went along. So here I am teaching it. (laughs) I don't know anything about the history of photography. I don't know anything. But, you know, it's like I'm flying by the seat of my pants. The students just liked me because, you know, in part, they didn't really care about the other part. What they cared about was the fact that I would, you know, kind of get in the darkroom with them and, you know, look at stuff with them and, and, you know, kind of be very proactive yeah. with their work. Yeah. And so I was really quite successful there, even though I didn't know a whole hell of a lot. And it was kind of like <laughs> figuring out stuff as I went along right. and trying to figure out things to tell them, you know, well, why don't you do this or why don't you do that? Or, you know, I think this would be an interesting idea. And I was just kind of using, and I guess this has been always my approach to teaching was that I was just using the the aesthetic background that I got between you know, studying art as an undergraduate and studying film as graduate student. Right. Um, I got a pretty well-developed uh, sense of aesthetics. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I, that's the, that's the thing that I would always draw on is a sense of aesthetics. And I didn't worry about like, well, this is the way you do this thing or that thing. Mm-hmm. I just try and 
try and apply my sense of aesthetics and figure out interesting challenges with any particular medium. And, right. you know, at that point in time, it happened to be photography. And so I did that for about a year and a half, and I was working in a movie theater, too, mm-hmm. um, where I learned projection and stuff like that. We had a, it was a really kind of cool movie theater they set up, and so, you know, I, I learned a lot of the ropes there about that stuff. Mm-hmm. But anyway, while I was there, um, one of my old grad school pals called me up from Towson and said, hey, we got this job here. I don't like the guy that's got the job. You want this job. <laughs> You know, can you come up here and interview? So I took the train up there and kind of did did a big round to connect with all the things and eventually interviewed at Towson. I guess it would have been, I'm trying to think. I don't even remember what time of year it was because I moved there in January of 88. So, so, so was, Peter, was Peter Lev already there? Oh, yeah, yeah. Lev was there. Moore was there. Greg Fowler was there. Steve Weiss was there. Right. I don't know if Steve Weiss was there while you were there. I don't. I don't. I don't, I don't. I don't think so. But as I was going through, like we we uh, we had Peter Lev on the program before, and we kind of talked about those early years of uh, the Towson's uh, uh, film department. And uh, yeah, it, it seemed like it was by by maybe what the by eighty five, eighty six, eighty seven, something like that. That was they 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 had created that new department, or were they on the cusp of creating the new, the new department? Up until I think, I want to say like ninety nine, they were part of MassCom. Right. Um, so it was it, well, it was like communication studies in MassCom or whatever the hell they called it mm-hmm. you know, back then. But it, you know, it was part of that big department. Film was woven into that. Or gotcha. film, radio, TV was woven into that, right. and they didn't spin off. I don't think until '99. Gotcha. But I think Peter got there probably, I don't know, early to mid '80s. Mm-hmm. Barry about the same time. There were some other people there, and then Stephen Gregg came on. I want to say probably like '86, maybe. Gotcha. Or something. Just maybe maybe a year or two before they brought me in, and then so my stipulation they brought me in to run the lab. Mm-hmm. And um, my stipulation was I wasn't really interested in taking the job unless I could do some teaching too. Ah, I see. And so that's how I kind of worked my way into teaching to start out with. Was you know I had the, I was doing the teaching of photography because I said I'm already doing teaching I'm already teaching photography down here. Mm-hmm. You know I only want to come up here if I can continue to teach because I like it right. and I'm enjoying it. Uh, so you know they they let me teach a couple of classes and run the lab because when I was running the lab. Even though I worked 40 hours a week, I only got paid for 20. <laughs> they didn't make it a full-time position oh, wow. until until um, I wasn't doing it anymore, and then they made it a full-time position. <laughs> so I was I was working, you know, getting paid for 20, working 40, and then teaching two classes. Wow. And then that kind of fluctuated until maybe, gosh, uh, I want to say about maybe 93 or so. Mm-hmm. I started teaching, I was teaching a full-time schedule, but getting paid part-time wages. <laughs> it seems so like they... Four classes a semester, but I was only getting paid as if I was an adjunct. <laughs> so I was working for poverty wages yeah. you know, most of my time there. Yeah. And you loved it, right? <laughs> well, I mean, well, I mean, I really, you know, I enjoyed the work so much I didn't care. I had my, my living expenses were low. I had a cheap apartment. Yeah. You know, I didn't ha- I didn't have to spend a lot of money, so I didn't need a lot of money, and you know, I I really loved the work. 
Did you have a a, a a girlfriend, a wife, family, or anything at that time? No, not, not at that time. Oh, you so know, you were you were living a bachelor lifestyle. I was, was living <laughs> a bachelor lifestyle. Yeah. And, <laughs> well, and the, the beauty of the, my setup in in Baltimore was I was li- I I was living in the early days of Canton before Canton was Canton, uh-huh. and uh, a block away from where where I had my apartment, I had a studio. Nice. I had a 400 square foot studio. Nice. Which I set up as you know my photography studio. Mm-hmm. So I mean that was it was and that was cheap between the two things. I mean I think I think between the two things I was at like a, maybe four hundred dollars a month. <laughs> wow. Or somewhere about Holy you know shit. so it's like I had a fabulous setup. I mean you know you can't really you know you can't really argue with that. So I mean if it wasn't making a lot of money it didn't really matter that much. When were you able to to branch out and kind of uh, introduce your own type of uh, uh, classes or maybe even specialty classes, you know, theory classes or anything? When, when were you able to really branch out and, and do your own thing? Were you able from the start to, to kind of no, shape no, your no, own no. thing? No, I, I, I finagled that. I'm, I'm trying to think of at what point did I actually kind of maneuver myself into that. Um, because they weren't teaching those things regularly. Right. It was always you know, like, like a particular person. Like every other semester right. kind of deal. Right. And so because they weren't doing it, I kind of just, I'm trying to think how I, because I, I got involved in scheduling at one point, and I don't know if it's because I got involved in scheduling that I was able to, in the scheduling room, give myself those classes. <laughs> you know, or something like that. It was, you know, it was something like that. But, I, you know, I just kind of maneuvered it and kind of, you know, just... Like, we had that, that, what was that class? It was just sort of a general class called film analysis. Right. Where you could basically create any kind of topic you wanted <laughs> exactly. under that guise. You could lock it in, yeah. Um, right. So that that was one thing that started. But then I was able to grab hold of the aesthetics class, and I was also able to do genre classes. Yeah. So I it was after, it was definitely, I'm trying to think at what point it was, because it, because as far as, from what I remember, as far up to even ninety nine, I mean, I was Mister Intro to Film. I mean, probably a third to half the kids had me for Intro to Film. Right. Coming through that program, because I used to do the big classes. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I nobody wanted to do the big classes, so I said I'll do it. <laughs> and so, you know, I had like a class of like one hundred and ten. Yeah. <laughs> and that's all I did was teach that one big class of one hundred and ten, and then I got to do one extra class and. So, I mean, I taught literally just about, I taught script writing there. I taught just about everything there at one time or another. Yeah. Filmmaking, so, the whole thing. So, with the cheap, cheap living and, and teaching classes and having a studio nearby and everything, it did, those were good years there. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, Baltimore was great to me. I mean, I, I have to tell you that after I took the job and I came back, I said, and I came back to Baltimore, I said, what the hell did I do? Because <laughs> Baltimore seemed like this weird throwback. Because Steve was taking me around these places, and it's like, you know, this place is still 10 years ago. Right, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what in the world is, <laughs> what in the world's going on here? This, this place is, this place is bizarre, but I had only been there maybe about a month or two. I was walking down the street, and I ran into one of my best buddies from Syracuse who had moved there at the same time. Oh, wow. He, he had been going to school in Arizona and moved to Baltimore. And I had been in Houston and moved to Baltimore, and we had been out of touch for years, and we were just walking down the street in Fells Point and literally walked right into each other. <laughs> and from that moment on, my whole time in Baltimore changed. Oh, yeah. Because I got introduced to a whole community of people and had, you know, just a really wonderful run there. 
Yeah, that's great. That's great. It seems like, uh, yeah, it, you're right. It, it does seem like, uh, I, I'm sure it's not that way anymore, but uh, even up to probably the 90s in, in Baltimore, it always felt that like there was, uh, it was out of time, out of place. It certainly felt like, uh, like it was, you know, maybe stuck in the 60s and the 70s, especially the art scene. Around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, when I first got there, like in 88, but by the time, gosh, even by the time you hit 90, then it became like this really cool place for right. about a decade. Right. I mean, just, you know, and I got to meet all sorts of people. I got to get involved in so many different things. You know, the Baltimore International Film Festival before the Charles thing, but when it was still at the museum, mm-hmm. I got to get, get involved with those folks. I got to do some writing for City Paper and um, a few other publications. I got to do, you know, I got to interview some filmmakers. So, I mean, I, I got to the good, you know, I ended up, having, and then I got to, to show a lot of work, too. I got, yeah. you know, I got my fair share of exhibitions around, too. So, I mean, it's like, you know, I had some really, really nice opportunities there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. During that time to do a whole bunch of other stuff. Definitely. Well, to, to segue a little bit, to talk about the uh, the meat of the, the two uh, classes that I uh, I wanted to to pick your brain on, um, you know, two, okay. of my, two of my big interests uh, came about from these classes I took in, in college with you. And, um, you know, the, it seems when I when I think back, you know, with the first one, of course, uh, I, I think that uh, I was a fan of those films of the 1970s and, and maybe not so much for, of the late 60s, but throughout the 70s, um, including Coppola's work and Jaws and stuff like that. Um, you know, for those who don't know, uh, they listen to the show, but sometimes, you know, we give them kind of a point of reference. We, we're talking about a movement uh, a lot of people refer to as, as New Hollywood or the American New Wave, um, basically when the inmates started running the asylum. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, for a film student, coming in i mean you're you're certainly if you're if you're interested in film you're exposed to mainstream and critical and commercial success type movies the real mainstream stuff so of course coming in your point of reference with the 70s for a lot of us is you know the godfather or taxi driver if you're if you're into scorsese or apocalypse now or something like that but um you know film school for for film students you know one of the major things of getting an education of course is to kind of blow open your your uh, your experience Experiences, your what you've what you've been exposed to already, and kind of give you a a, a, a place to explore your uh, your narrow point of view and kind of blow that open. And um, you know, as I gravitated to this, to movies of the seventies, I don't know how much I explored before uh, being in a class uh, like yours about uh, about New Hollywood. Um, what do you think kind of sets apart this phase? from Hollywood before and even after? Well, what you basically have, in part, is you have a whole bunch of people coming up who grew up on movies, um, and more specifically grew up on foreign films. Not so much American films, but really foreign films. And where um, where the director had a tremendous amount of control. Right. And where they could... Where, they, where you could say that they could express a personal vision. And that wasn't, in the commercial film industry, that hadn't always been the case. I mean, it was really more the producer's vision than it really was the director's vision. Right. It was the producer, really, that was in control. Um, but, you know, what you have really starting, I guess, 
with the French New Wave more than anything else, yeah. is you have a whole bunch of French filmmakers who grew up on American films, mm-hmm. and then it then it kind of all turns about, and then you have a whole bunch of American filmmakers who grew up on <laughs> sure French is. filmmakers. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and, and you know, of course, the Italians too. You know, Fellini and and Antonioni and stuff. Mm-hmm. But they, you know, they they saw where you know the film could be used to you know really as an art form. Where and by an art form, I really mean where it can be used to express some kind of personal vision. Right. And you have, so you have these these people, like they, you know, when you go back in Hollywood, it's not like um, it's not like I don't look at somebody like you know Howard Hawks or uh, oh, I'm trying to pull names out of out of my head here. Um, Hawks was just the first one that came to mind. John Ford. Yeah. It's not like you wouldn't say that those people didn't have personal vision. They themselves might not even say that they have personal vision, but they did. You know, you can you can see it like that. Um, but this whole new crop of filmmakers, those guys were 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 building off a different sort of background, different sorts of interests, you mm-hmm. know, whether it was reading, whether it was life experience, whether, you know, it could have been a whole series of things. Whereas the group that you see come in, you know, really in the, I guess more really the late 60s and into the 70s, this is a group of people that grew up on film. Yeah, right. They grew up on media. Right. And so that's really their 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 point of reference. And so... You know, you really have a group of films that's starting to, I guess you want to say, talk about film as film. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, if I were related to art, for example, and I would talk about something like abstract expressionism and Jackson Pollock or something like that, right. um, just to use a, 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 you know, a name that probably at least somebody, has, everybody has some kind of sense <laughs> sure. of what that means. Sure. Um, you know, what you had is painting becomes about paint. You know, paint on the surface, paint on canvas, paint, mm-hmm. you know, what paint does when it hits the canvas, that kind of stuff. Right. Well, that's what film became about. It wasn't any longer about stories or stars or anything like that. It was about, you know, film itself as a medium. Right. And that's the part that that always intrigued me about, you know, that period of time. You know, that's why, you know... That's why I don't, you know, really get too excited about a Star Wars, although my son is very much into Star Wars, and, you know, I had to kind of, you know, kind of fall into his interest. Um, But, um, you know, that's why I don't get so excited about a film like Star Wars or a film like Jaws or whatever, because I don't really feel like it's about that kind of stuff that interests me. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, say, if I go to Lucas's early work, like THX 1138, I'm intrigued by that. Mm -hmm. That, that, you know... that's the kind of film that, that, that catches my attention. Yeah. I mean, even Spielberg and, um, gosh, what was the Sugarland, Sugarland Express? Is that? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I think it is. There, yeah. there, you know, there's a lot of really nice things in the Sugarland Express. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it, it gets a little cheesy at certain points where he, you know, that, that's the thing with Spielberg, too. I mean, he was different than the other people. I mean, he wasn't somebody who had that same kind of, same type of film points of reference as the other right. as the other ones did. Whether you're talking about De Palma or whether you're talking about Scorsese or any of those, he's he was was pretty much the outsider to that group. He hung around right. with them, right. but he was really pretty much an outsider. Right. Um, and so I I just don't I don't have the same sense of depth when I watch a Spielberg film for the most part right. as I do when I watch some of these other people. Yeah. Is it is I it? Is it kind of that that frame of reference of, of being more 
more experimental or that he's doing a lot of things kind of in a in a very traditional narrative way i mean you look at a movie like duel it's it's a, a movie that if uh, if one revisits uh, he seems to be really trying to prove himself so he's kind of throwing everything in the kitchen sink at you but um, you know uh, the difference between, say, uh, that movie or Sugarland Express, and and certainly you know Jurassic Park or the Indiana Jones movies, it's night and day. You know, it seems like he's kind of tapping into a very traditional narrative sense, a very traditional shooting sense. Well, I, you know, with the Spielberg movie, I mean, it it's so much built on sensation. I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's using the medium to you know, create a real visceral effect in the viewer. Right. He's not he's not really using it in such a way he doesn't really have a strong desire, at least I haven't sensed in most of his work, to make about making the viewer think. I mean when you think about duel, I mean you got two cars. Right. One one guy's trying to kill the other guy. Right. That's that's pretty much the you know, it's kind of storyless in a way, mm-hmm. which is kind of a radical departure for him. But <laughs> You know, it's it, well. It is. I mean, because you know, so much of the yeah. thing is is built on, you know, is built on some kind of storytelling, and that's not really any storytelling at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, to, it's a Twilight Zone episode. It's <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's a really, really simple story where he can use, uh, he can show a lot of technique, and you know, yeah. credit goes to him for keeping it interesting for ninety <laughs> minutes. Um, you know, I. But you know, again, it's. I don't know. At the end of the day how much there is to say about it. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, versus, you know, a lot of these other films that kind of make you think about a whole lot of things. Right, right. Um, you know, if you're talking about an Altman film, when you take something, you know, more obscure, like, say, like, Three Women, mm-hmm. it's like just trying to wrap your head around it is like, whoa. I mean, I, you know, what? The, one of the Altman films that first really caught my attention, I'm trying to make sure, I'm trying to think... I saw him mash very early on. Right. Oh well, the one that re- the, the first almond film that really impacted me with was um, Brewster McCloud. Gotcha. Because it was just so bizarre. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just so you know, just so odd. But the one you know, from a filmmaking standpoint, the one that I really, really like that most people have not seen is A Wedding. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen. Uh, it. The, a Wedding is is. Especially sound-wise, and of course that you know the, the, that that was always my biggest concern back then. Right. It's so intriguing because he plays with the sound so much. Yeah. You know what soundy foregrounds? What sound? You know, you might be looking at an image and seeing somebody in the foreground, but the but the soundtrack foregrounds the people in the background. Right. And he's he's constantly you know playing with it like that, and moving you around the frame with the sound. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the kind of stuff that really grab my attention. That and stuff like, you know, Badlands and Days of Heaven, especially Days of Heaven, and the way that film uses sound. Yeah. You know, just really, you know, blew me away. And it has that kind of elliptical story where the story right. isn't... It, it, all the elements kind of contribute to telling the story. Yeah. No one element stands out, and that's right. the thing that I really always liked about that film. Right. You fill it in for yourself. Is that another thing that, uh, you know, we were talking about, uh, you know, them being able to, these filmmakers who grew up on media, 
being able to t- tell personal stories and everything. Is that another aspect to New Hollywood? Is that ability to to kind of we, we've kind of we've kind of implied it is the is the idea that the the person is that the the viewer is taking their own interpretation from it. That it's it's not. Uh, it, it, I believe it was either I forget where I, I read that or maybe I heard someone say that that seventies cinema is very much like uh, you know a broken bottle <laughs> that that is like shoved in your gut and broken off and it's kind of like left to you just the, the way that it can hit you uh, these these narratives these these characters these you know these uh, explorations in a way that it's not it's not easy to to put together. Is that another aspect to New Hollywood? Um, to some degree, I, you know, I think if you look at, look at the conclusions of most of the films, too, um, if I were to generalize, most of the films are pretty open-ended right. in terms of their ending. Right. Um, you know, when you, we had mentioned Five Easy Pieces as one example. Right. But, you know, you, you look at the conversation, for example, there's, you know... Certainly. You're assuming that he's kind of lost his mind at the end. Right. When you think about it, you know, because I, you know, I know that you, we had we had talked about the possibility of talking about the counselor, mm-hmm. you know. Then you have the extension of it with enemy enemy in the state, yeah. Where it's almost like you see, you know, that character, you know, some twenty years later. Or, yeah. I don't even. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's something like twenty years later, yeah, yeah. 20, 20 plus. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it, literally, Gene Hackman is playing the same character, <laughs> yeah. and they're just sort of going on from there. And I mean, so there, there's a real. There's a real beauty to that, but it, it's, you know, like, on one hand, I'm saying personal vision, but on the flip side, it's not such personal vision where it's imposed on you. Right. Um, one thing, there, there's one um, concept that I keep coming back to. It took me, gosh, it took me, I don't know. I interviewed Vim Vendors for City Paper. Nice. Um, when he came to um, Baltimore to present, um, presented, uh, Wings of Desire, and I think Far Away So Close was his new film. Mm-hmm. And he, he brought it to the senator, and I had finagled this interview with him. And so I was interviewing him while, the, while the, uh, Far Away So Close was playing. I didn't get to see it till later. Um, but in the Q&A after either Wings of Desire or Far Away So Close, he talked about this, um, this concept. When, when I was listening to it, I didn't really understand it. I didn't understand it really until days later, mm-hmm. um, where he talked about Contemporary um, movies being what he said was they were too wall to wall, and that there was no space for the viewer to occupy. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, at the time, I didn't really understand what he was talking about, and it wasn't until I thought about it later that I mean the thing about the '70s films is they're not wall to wall. Right. There's a lot of downtime in there. There's a lot of space for the viewer to kind of insert themselves in an, in sort of like basically almost becoming a character within the film. Mm-hmm. Not literal, not like a literal character, but becoming part of the film. Right. You know, a living, breathing part of it. It's the way that I, you know, it's kind of what uh, brought about uh, a fascination in me much later with silent film. Mm-hmm. When I re- realized that silent film does much the same. Right. You know, you don't hear the characters talk. You have to imagine what their con- their conversations are about. Right. You know, you get intertitles that give you little fragments of them, but you're basically, as you're watching it, if you're really into it and you're, you're locked in, you're imagining the conversations these people are having. You're mm-hmm. supplying part of the material. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, that's that's really what, what Vendors was getting across, and I think that's what happens in these 70s films are, you know, you have to you have to really put yourself in there, and you have to kind of start making sense of the narrative almost like a character would. You know, right. very, you know the, the, the perfect example of this would really be Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because as you're watching Chinatown, you're putting things together as um, the, the Giddens character is putting right. it together, as Jack right. Nicholson's character is putting it together. Right. And it doesn't, doesn't come to a head until it comes to a head for him. You know, he, when he finally, like, figures out what's going on, you figure out what's going on. Right, exactly. I mean, that's, that's really the beauty of that film is that there's, there's little clues and stuff along the way, but nothing adds up. It's not adding up for him. It's not adding up for you right. until you get right there at the end. And then, you know, it, you know, it hits you like a, it hits you like a rock, really, mm-hmm. you know, just like a rock to the head, like, whoa. Well, you know, that had a little bit tighter of a narrative structure than some of these others, but it's the same kind of idea yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. where, Absolutely. you know, you have to embody the film for the film to work. If you don't, if you just sit back and let it unfold in front of you, it's not going to do anything for you. Yeah. You're not going to get much out of it. Absolutely. You know, you have to invest something of yourself. And that's what, you know, so much of the, you know, you're talking about your generation or coming into like a class of mine, you know, that's the thing to try and that's the challenge to try and open people's mind up to that you just don't sit back and you have a really passive role in this and you just let it all unfold right. in front of you. Right. You have an active role. You're a participant. Yeah. You have to be kind of watching, putting things together, making sense of things, understanding it. And when you, if that's what you end up loving about cinema, then anything that doesn't allow you to do that is entirely disappointing. Yeah. 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 You start, yeah, if you're, if you're, if you're attuned to that, I don't think that you're really going to feel, uh, like your appetite, your appetite is satiated, you know, if you're, if you're dealing with something that's, you know, so straightforward or leading you by the hand, uh, you know, uh, and, isn't, and, and also too, is an open to interpretation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you, if it's not open to interpretation, if it's too spelled out, then, you know, what, what, what can you do with it? Have you had a chance to uh, see True Detective on HBO? No, no, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, with with HBO, with with all the premiums these days, I have to wait for the yeah for the DVDs to come out and watch sure. them in a burst. Because I mean, everything I've seen about it looks looks really, really intriguing. I I I, I would love to to chat with you about that because that's certainly a a show that I think I mean it has it has those elements in there that. There, it's it's open to interpretation, or it's not showing its its cards too much. You know, there's a lot in there that you need to kind of infer uh, from from what is on the screen or from what a character says. It's it's a it's a very well written show. Um, when we talk about uh, you know the the things that were on your syllabus in this class, and I kind of think about the in retrospect. Uh, how each one of them kind of represented a milestone of the of the movement or of uh, the the sh- subgenre or a mission statement of of New Hollywood. I think about these movies that you showed, like Targets and Pretty Poison, very early uh, in the in the movement, and then you know in the in the middle of the movement, like Five Easy Pieces and and Shampoo, uh, Nashville, the Altman stuff, and then getting to the to the end of it um getting really disillusioned not only with 
with Vietnam, uh, but with Watergate and Nixon and kind of being very paranoid about uh, the government and kind of getting into these movies like The Parallax View and, and uh, Cutter's Way towards the end of it. You know, I, I, I really st- step back and I think about those movies, uh, what, what memories I have of them, even vague recollections. And I, I seem to, to remember how edgy they felt even seeing them, what was that, 2004, 2003, whenever I was in your class. It still, it still holds up. Yeah, well, I mean, everybody always talks about things like Vietnam and talks about, uh, you know, Watergate and those those kind of big historical moments. Yeah. Um, what they, the part that's that's also included in there is, um, there's a lot of other stuff that was going on that was that was equally bleak. Mm-hmm. You had um, New York City was about to go under. Mm-hmm. In '75, it was ready to declare bankruptcy. Right. Um, you had. Um, in terms of like um, mortgages and stuff, the mortgages were up. Some of them were up as high as twenty percent interest rate. Jesus. You know, now we got like, you know, two or three percent interest rate. Jesus. And you know, then it was like twenty percent. It's like everything. You know, we had gas crisis. We mm-hmm. had everything seemed just rather bleak. Right. You know, just across the board, for you know regular and and also too in you know in the part of the country where I was going up, you know, the auto industry was starting to shut down. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, lots of people were losing their jobs and that whole, you know, the middle class was really losing their grip. Yeah. And so a lot of that, you know, a lot of that malaise is, you know, touched so much of society. And it's something that, you know, people that come later, you know, 80s or 90s, they don't really understand that so much. Yeah. I mean, as a side note, I mean, one thing that I'd add to this is when I was an undergraduate in the studio program, studio program, we had on campus we had all these returning Vietnam vets. And so these guys were my classmates. Mm-hmm. And that made for really, <laughs> you know, really interesting sort of classroom atmosphere. Right. Because we're talking about people that have seen a lot of nasty <laughs> stuff. Sure. I mean, really nasty stuff. I mean, and, and so many of these people are great guys, but, you know, a lot of them were really damaged, too. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, just really damaged. But I don't know if there's been anything... You know exactly comparable to. I mean, maybe you know, maybe a lot of the post World War II stuff was probably very similar. You know, guys coming back and going to school on the GI Bill. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you know, we don't talk. You know, they they don't talk about the, all the horrible things that they saw. You know, so much. But you know, I bet it. W- I I wouldn't be surprised if it was very similar. I mean, you know, you look at somebody like Kurt Vonnegut, for example. Right. You know, he's a good example of that, of somebody coming back after the war that Benson really through some really rough experiences, you know, becoming the creative person that he became. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, I was coming out of, you know, I came out of a similar sort of atmosphere. It's a really, you know, it was really another kind of odd time in America. Right. And I don't know if that same thing has happened, you know, post-Iraqi war or, you know, post-Afghanistan. I don't know if the same thing exists out there in colleges now as, you know, as it did in those, those two previous eras. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's so many things that added to that, that sense of, you know, that sense of malaise. That sense, well, you know, we're coming off our, our, you know, the first war we essentially lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The atmosphere certainly is not that of, of a victor, of a, of a victor. No, not at all. I mean, and you have all those soldiers returning and, you know, right. getting the cold shoulder like they did. Yeah. You know, it's like, it, it, it's, and the movie's just... 
I don't want to say they they reflected it exactly, but they but they tapped into that. Yeah. You know, to, into that mindset that was already out there in the you know in the culture. Right. I, uh, you know, with you talking about um, uh, movies like Days of Heaven, and I was thinking about uh, that Z Channel documentary. Have you seen that? About uh, Z Channel on on, um, on the West Coast throughout the 80s? Jerry Hardy? No, I don't know. No, I haven't seen that. No. Oh, it's fantastic. But, um, you know, for, for someone who was such a a cinephile throughout the 70s and 80s and such a big fan of, of, uh, of filmmakers like Michael Cimino... Um, He's he Jerry Harvey kind of programmed Z Channel as kind of a of a a seventies uh, cinephile uh, HBO. So mm-hmm. when watching watching that and it, you talking about uh, uh, Days of Heaven made me think about that because that was he was he was also you know one of these people that that insisted on uh, the aspect ratio. He wouldn't give up to to making it four by three for a television. Okay. He was one okay. of these, you know, one of these people that that wanted to try to get as much uncut director's cut uh, material on there. So he, I think, when the Sicilian came out, uh, he was really uh, one of the one of the only people that exhibited the movie in its uncut director's form before it got cut to shit. Uh, not to say that the original, I, I haven't seen the original cut. I don't know if it's even available, but uh, I don't know if it's uh, uh, that good a movie even in that form. But he was one of these people that, that uh, really championed that. And that's what I was thinking about when you were talking about uh, these movies of the 70s. That's uh, another uh, good um, historical nugget is to, to kind of see it through this group of filmmakers that ended up being like Alexander Payne and Quentin Tarantino, people that did see uh, these types of movies as a, as a second generation of filmmakers that grew up on, you know, cable media, seeing these movies in, in, in cable form. But anyway, that's a, a little, uh, a little side rant. What were you, what were these, um, what were the cornerstone films for you? during the during the time i mean you were you were growing up at the perfect time you were in the zeitgeist for it um well i mean the ones that the, the, some of the ones that jump into mind are um because back then if i really liked a film um and and i saw it at the right time they wouldn't boot you out of the theater if you wanted to stay and watch it again because you know it's not like you're going to be able to watch it on dvd later right or you know even tape later right and so i would sit and and sometimes sit through two showings of something. Nice, nice. If I was really caught up in it. Um, but for me, you know, when I think of the films that really kind of jump out to me as having as having impact, start shooting off names off the top of my head. I mean, Annie Hall certainly had an impact, mm-hmm. um, and it wasn't so much for its humor. I just loved Woody Allen as a character. I could identify so strongly with him. Right. Um, with played against Sam and um, the uh, and Annie Hall. I mean, those two films especially, I just could identify with the character. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, especially like, you know, Parallax View was, was a film that made a huge impact. Let's see, Sisters was a film that I liked a great deal, mm-hmm. um, De Palma's early film. I, I, in fact, I think I, in grad school, I think I wrote about Sisters, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Let's see. Uh, I already told you about Almond's a Wedding. I mean, but I mashed uh, Booster McCloud. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, I mean, anything that Altman put out, you know, I would go see. Oddly enough, I can't tell you how many times I've fallen asleep 
during Mean Streets. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually don't know if I've ever stayed awake for the whole film, ever. Right. I just, it just doesn't, it doesn't do it for me. <laughs> um, you know, but, you know, but as opposed to Taxi Driver, which, I, you know, Taxi Driver is a film that I like a lot. Um, I'm trying uh, the, the Bogdanovich thing uh, bu- 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 with I mean, you Jeff did, Bridges you, and right. Yeah, I was going to Shepard say, and um, I was going to say oh, the big the big uh, actors uh, for that time. I mean, you seem to gravitate, especially from from the, from the syllabus of movies that you had. It seemed like Jeff Bridges showed up in in several of the movies that you liked. Oh yeah, well, yeah. We have Stay Hungry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can take me for not being able to get it. <laughs> That's a that's a movie. Stay Hungry is a movie that that uh, if you have the pleasure to see, it it, it will definitely uh, stay in your memory. It's it's a very odd odd. I don't know if I don't know if it really fits a genre either. It's it's not something that you could say that it is a, a, a comedy or a drama or a a sports type movie. <laughs> well, it is, you know, but in its own way, it's very political. Yeah. Because if you remember, there's that that whole political undercurrent of you know sort of urban renewal and uh-huh. and exploitation by developers yeah. and um, so in some way you know it, 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 it's it's every bit as much well I mean it, it, it's very similar to the whole five easy pieces thing yeah sure mm-hmm. you know it's just but but utilizing Arnold in a totally completely unique yeah, yeah. way yeah that I is mean, it, that, I mean that's the beauty of it I mean he's like he doesn't even have to act all he has to do is play himself and it is. It's amazing. He 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 does have so much charisma. He is very watchable. He is. He is. I mean, he's such a unique. He's such a unique figure, and mm-hmm. nobody really gives a credit. I mean, Warren Beatty was another one of my favorites. I mean, I you know I would go see literally anything that Warren Beatty was in. Right. In fact, I wrote, I also wrote a paper on. Gosh, what well, he made that football movie that I can't think of, where he uh, oh Heaven Can Wait, which yeah, yeah. was the remake of the. Um, uh, of a what forties film or something like that thirties mm-hmm. forties yes. film. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I wrote a paper on having to wait. I went through this whole thing about his his different personas in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, you know, he was another figure. You know, Karen Black. You know, right. and all the things she turned up with, especially with Altman. But then there's oddball stuff, which I, some of the stuff I don't even think is available anymore. There's a movie called Slither with right. Peter Boyle, and I think. I think Karen Black's in that too. Right. Um, I don't. I don't even know if that ever even came out on videotape. It's like <laughs> one of these really obscure, really really obscure things. Really odd film. It was made by a guy who had directed commercials, and that right. was, I think, his first feature, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Um, but that's just kind of disappeared in the cosmos. Peter Boyle, Joe. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's a movie um, with Susan Sarandon in her first role, I think. Yeah. Um, it's, or one it's, of her first roles. It's so interesting for someone, especially that is is uh, is familiar with um, uh, Peter Boyle from you know Ray Romano's show, or even from Dream Team, you know, in the late '80s, to see him playing these characters, or even like a heavy in uh, the Friends of Eddie Coyle, to see him. I mean, well, I mean, he's a he's a dark, you know, he's a dark guy. Yeah. I mean, you know, Taxi Driver. In taxi Driver, exactly. I mean, dark. I mean, yeah. dark, Joe, dark. Yeah. I mean, really dark. Definitely. You know, they they don't realize that, you know, a lot of people don't realize the talent that that man had. Absolutely not. And, um, you know, is it, I, you know, thinking about it, too, I mean, crime cinema, uh, 
prime cinema in the 70s seemed very similar to even the noir stuff that was coming out in the 40s. Do you think that it has to do with the atmosphere? Do you think that's the, you know, we're we're in a war in the 40s or even post-war and, you know, that whole phase, is that similar to what's going on in the 70s? You know, I, I, I was sitting there, as you were starting to say that, I was starting to think, okay, let me let me try and plug into, you know, a particular title. You know, because, you know, I mean, you know, yeah, Badlands is a crime film. But I was thinking so, about something more like, um, gosh, like the Anderson tapes. Right. You know, there, there's a lot of, well, there's a lot of cool films like that that are like these strange caper films. Yeah, sure. Um, that, that plug into these issues as well, you know, being wiretapped and, you know, and surveillance and, uh-huh. um, yeah, I mean, you know, even, again, the, you know, that, even the conversation, like you said. Yeah, I, so it's not, I don't think, it's not really quite the same as noir. Right. It's, it's some other, it's, a, it's, it's something of a different animal other than the fact that you have that same sense of malaise mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly in that post-war, because times weren't great for those people coming back initially. I mean, yeah, they were, they were glad to be out of the war, but there weren't necessarily any jobs. And, right. You know, it took a while for things to get you know, rolling again and people to find their place again. Right. So on that level, you'd have to say there's quite a bit of comparison. But there's a sort of, you know, the other thing that these things have is, I can't say off the top of my head what I think it's due to, but there's a sense of humor mm-hmm. um, in some of these things. I'm trying, you know, well, I, was, I was thinking of the, uh, the Long Goodbye, Almond's Long Goodbye. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean, that, the that difference... elements of that. Yeah, the, and the de- like. If you were to Irony, compare, this is what I was trying to say: is you know when we think about Pretty Poison, yeah, and you know the irony in that film, yeah, and just you know, and then the, that twist that <laughs> you know <laughs> where it ends up going is just so sure. unex- you know, you know, if you haven't seen it, it's so unexpected, yeah. That you know that Anthony Perkins is going to find himself <laughs> there, and that you know what has happened the whole film, and we've kind of you know, kind of had the wool pulled over our eyes the whole film, yeah. not really realizing, you know, all the manipulation that was going on. Yeah, absolutely. It's just a, it's a, a similar thing, you know, when you mentioned uh, Long Goodbye. To, to, it's an it's a interesting thing to compare, uh, you know, Howard Hawks's, um, uh Big Sleep with Bogart to, to this Philip Marlowe that, that Elliot Gould did in Altman's Long Goodbye. It's a it's not it's not similar but it's interesting how they spin that character. How they spin the private eye uh mystery noir into something that's, you know, like you like you mentioned before, something that is meandering, something that's a a cultural like journey, not just a a story journey. It's it's you know about uh, L.A. in the in the in the seventies and and uh, uh, yoga and uh, drugs and um, you know kind of the the um, gangsters of of Long Goodbye are you know they're they're you know some of them are hippies and some of them it's just a different uh, atmosphere and. It, yeah. Go ahead. Well, you know, thinking about the big sleep, though, the big sleep actually slots in fairly well with those. Yeah, sure. Because 
Well, it, just in the sense that it's completely non-narrative. The narrative doesn't really make a whole <laughs> lot of it doesn't logical at all. sense. Sure, you don't it's even know how they. Uh, yeah, you don't even know how. I guess the the driver, if I or remember. Too, yeah, yeah. In the end, it doesn't, and it doesn't matter. Yeah, you don't care because it's all about it's all about atmosphere. Yeah. And even that element, when you were talking about, I mean, you know, I was kind of just thinking about all this stuff as you were talking. You know, you're talking about the hippies like in, uh, you know, in, in sunbathing topless and long yeah. goodbye, right? Yeah, right. Well, they, you know, that's not any different than the, the young girl in in, uh, in the big sleep when she tries to sit in his lap. Right, yeah, yeah. Up, you know, yeah. it's like, you know, it's you know, you're cute. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's not, in some ways, you know, the, and that was, you know, to, to be honest, uh, Big Sleep was a big influence on me. Sure. I mean, I saw that film, and that probably as much as any film from that period just captivated me. Yeah. You know, it, it shaped what I read from that point on. Yeah. Like no other film. I mean... I mean, it's just... It, it's it that that was such an impactful film on me. If you if you watch the the uh, what is it the the uncensored version or the fen- the version before it got cut, the the, ins- oh, the yeah the two, the two variations yeah, yeah mm-hmm. the insinuation you know the kind the kind of uh, uh, tawdriness in the in the dialogue is is pretty edgy for its time. I mean, really, really kind of it would be at home on HBO now. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, you know, and add to that the fact that, um, oh, no, 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 I, I, I'm getting two films mixed up. because I, I was, For a minute, I was mixing it up with To Have and To Have Not, because that right. was the challenge, like, of Hawks making a film out of, uh, out of Hemingway's worst book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, or so, at least I think the, the, the way the story goes on that. But I, I just can't even begin to, you know, and I hadn't seen some of these others. I mean, you know, another really big film for me from, you know, in terms of shaping things is seeing the killers because that really that was another one that really kind of you know set me up for this for this this later part but there was just you know like i said there's there was something about those films that allowed me as viewer to become part of them right and you know once we move into the 80s those films really start to disappear well sure sure you know and then they then they kind of come back again in the 90s yeah with, uh, you know, whether it's Jim Jarmusch and Stranger Than Paradise, uh-huh. or whether it's uh, Hal Hartley and Unbelievable Truth or Trust, yeah. um, where all of the, you know, they, there was a nice renaissance there for a stretch, and then it disappeared again. Right. And, but it's funny you mentioned, you mentioned, um, gosh, what it was, um, Quentin Tarantino and Alexander Payne, mm-hmm. because I, I almost see them as two sides of a coin. They're both after sort of a visceral reaction, but from two different angles. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, Tarantino wants to do something that's going to affect you viscerally by by something that, that I guess you'd say happens on screen. Yeah. Whereas pain, it's more like the cumulative effect of watching. Right. It's not like a scene or any one thing. Right. It's the cumulative, at least for me, in the the ones that I've seen, and I I haven't seen the most recent one, Mm -hmm. um, but it's kind of like the cumulative effect of, you know, this event upon this event upon this event creates a visceral impact. I'm thinking of about Schmidt in that regard, especially. Sure. Yeah, definitely more journey-oriented, I think. He, uh, 
he never seems like he's uh, his 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 ideas of, of of vignettes too. I think about movies like even his early stuff like Election or whatever. Uh, it is it is it isn't something that's a a, a straight through line uh, as far as a plot. It is uh, cumulative mm-hmm. and and building. You know, um, talking about the the class and talking about the the really the end of that phase i gotta say for me though the one the the movie that uh, impacted me the most was probably cutter's way it's something that really hit me in the gut and it was a movie that i became obsessed with for for years afterwards well i mean it's you know you you can't help but be you know and I, i can remember my initial reaction to seeing it you know, just being so impacted by, I have to say, just the utter, utter hopelessness yeah. of it all. Yeah, yeah. If I you mean, want, like, bl- if no you bleak endings, you do, there's nothing you can. You, there's just nothing you can do. Right. Nothing. There's not. There's no heroism. It's uh, it, the way that it ends is is absolutely uh, as as bleak a, an ending as I've seen. Would you compare to that to to the counselor? Yeah, the the way that it that it feels, yeah, it's, it is hopeless. It is. I think about even you know, uh, it's it's a movie in 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 a, a very different uh, medium, I would say, or a very different category. A movie like uh, Fincher Seven, but it does leave you with that kind of broken piece of glass in your gut because it's not something that has you know uh thorough answers beside and and even cutter's way ends on on a frame of just utter shock yeah i feel that way about the counselor and i saw i saw that recently and that's uh very similar i felt the same way It, it there is no uh happiness for any character in that in that story in that ensemble yeah, and I, um, I mean, I, you, you, it's so much like Seven. Yeah. It's so much like Seven. I mean, there's there's no way you can rationalize a happy ending out of it. Yeah. Though... But, I mean, that was really the beauty of Seven, you know, because, you know, you, you, got, you got stuck in a pickle with no way out. Yeah. You know, essentially. And that's what happened in, um, that's what happened in Cutter's Way. And like I said, I have not seen The Counselor, but... You know, there are, there's a very rare film where you're really so boxed in mm-hmm. that you just, you know, I, I still remember when I was when I saw Seven in the audience, and as, as we were walking out, <laughs> there was a guy that's sitting right behind me. He said, "Well, that really sucked." <laughs> and then he's talking about the ending, and it's like, you know, I, you know, yeah, that 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 was the point. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think that that it. Um, I, I I hate to split hairs. I don't know. I think the ending of Seven kind of just with Morgan Freeman's, uh, you know, uh, narration at the end, it kind of tries to lean it back towards hopeful. Just with him, you no, know, well, saying I mean, any any time you got to, you know, for the most part, almost any time you have somebody that resorts to narration at the end of a film. <laughs> It's like they know they got a problem. It's just like, well, it's it's like I read. The, I, I I think it's something that I read. I'm I think in the New Yorker they were profiling uh, Scorsese's Casino, mm-hmm. and it's like, you know, Casino's got a huge problem when he has to have that narration over the very beginning, right? So you can just understand what the hell's going on, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's like if it if he has to tell you it, then 
he hasn't done a very good job of constructing it. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. that's, you know, versus, now here, here's the contrast. Here's the beautiful contrast. The end of Days of Heaven, mm-hmm. which uses narration in a really unique way. Right. Narration that doesn't strictly speak to the actions going on, but it has to do with the tone of voice, yeah. the words that are used to express. It doesn't tell you the action, but it, it kind of sort of gives you an additional bit of information to weave in. Mm-hmm. That's where, you know, that's really the art of narration for me. Right. That's when narration is being used really effectively. But when you, so much of the time you just see this as like a patch, you know, either to, to, to try and like clean up the ending, like you said, you know, mm-hmm. so you take away the bleakness, you know, you got him coming in, you know. Yeah. Talking about bit, how the... Or somebody explaining everything to you, well, this is what happened, you know. Yeah. The, you know, like you get at the end of every Law & Order episode. Or, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, the, or what has has quintessentially become kind of a, a, a cinephile's gripe with, even though I, growing up on it, I loved it, was the uh, ending of Psycho. Having this psychotherapist uh, tell you everything that went, that happened, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you? Uh, I know. You, I know you wanted to get to David Lynch. Yeah. So maybe yeah. we should get to David Lynch. We 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 should. I mean, we've been we've been talking quite a, quite a while here. I, I think that um, you know it's interesting with uh, with uh, all the the classes I did take at, at Towson. Uh, you know, it, it was always the the specialty, the film analysis classes, or kind of the uh, auteur classes. I've had a couple of them, but uh, David Lynch was um, someone. I don't know if I had. You know what? I think I might have only seen. Um, some episodes of Twin Peaks and maybe Eraserhead uh, by the time I came into your class. So it was really, you know, seeing his his later work or even, you know, his formative years in that, you know, late 80s, early 90s. It was really mind-blowing. Did you, uh, how, did, how did you come to, to his work? Did you see him uh, as a midnight filmmaker, midnight movie uh, early on, or did you come to him later? I, said, I, I um... I think I saw, if memory serves me right, I'm sure, I'm pretty positive I saw Eraserhead before I saw anything. Yeah. And then saw, and that was, I saw that in college, and it wasn't like at a regular screening. It was either at a midnight screening or part of the college film series when I was at Syracuse somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was up at Syracuse when I saw that, and then I saw Eraserhead in the theater. I'm trying to think, what, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the sequence of things, because I saw Blue Velvet down in Houston, when I when I was living in Houston, Lost Highway, of course, in 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 Baltimore, but I, you know, to to be honest, David David Lynch was not a filmmaker that I liked at all. What, what was it? Somebody from from I, I from liked, Eraserhead on. Well, I liked the idea of Eraserhead. I loved the soundtrack, but it wasn't. I I didn't really like the film all that much, right. to be honest with you. Right. Um, and the idea of doing a Lynch, I didn't really really begin to like. David Lynch until Twin Peaks, I think, is when I really like right. started to get into him. Um, but I don't even remember what inspired the idea of doing a Lynch class because when I started, I wasn't really that enamored with him. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> as as we looked at things, I mean, you know, I, I guess I thought he was important or yeah. you know worthwhile to just see what happened because right. you know not everything I did was you know not everything I did or not everything I showed were always things that I completely loved, but I wanted to put him out there as, you know, for discussion, yeah. I guess is probably the easiest way. Yeah, yeah. And it was through the course of showing in the class that I really grew to love Lynch and understand him. Yeah, yeah. And begin to make sense of him 
Um, and as I started to read some interviews and stuff, everybody talked about how elliptically talks and he doesn't talk to the point. And, you know, I found his his interviews direct, you know very much to the point. And in reading his interviews, I understood exactly what it was, or at least I felt like I knew exactly right. what it was that he was going after. Right. And you know, I thought he he spoke exactly to his filmmaking process. Um, which I think a lot of people misunderstand. I mean, including I, I was t- telling you about, uh, or I might not have told this to you, but you know, I, I really enjoyed that David uh, David Foster Wall, uh, Wallace right. article. Right. Um, but the one mistake he makes is when he's talking about Lynch's work, he describes him as an abstract expressionist, which in fact he's not at all. Mm-hmm. Number one, right? Because an abstract expressionist is like Jackson Pollock. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. It's not that. It's not that abstract. No, he, and he's not, a, he's not an expressionist either. Yeah. What he is is, David Lynch is a surrealist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the difference is, with a surrealist, it's, the, the key is always juxtaposition. Right. And that's the key with Lynch. It's all about juxtaposition. Right. It's about putting two things side by side and seeing what happens. Right. And if you look at his personal work, you know, his work like his painting or his photography, it's all built on juxtaposition mm-hmm. of two elements to, to kind of find a, you know, reaction or, or to create some new meaning out of it. And so much of his filmmaking has that same sense of juxtaposition. I didn't think it worked as well in Eraserhead. I mean, you know, sure. I, I'm still not... I like Eraserhead for the soundtrack, but like I said, it's a film, I like moments in it, and other moments, you know, just kind of leave me a little bit cold. Yeah. Um, and uh, Elephant Man doesn't really excite me all that much either. Right. You know, it's just little bit too conventional but when i think of you know especially like blue velvet blue velvet does it so beautifully yeah it's superb so definitely. beautifully you know you have you know what uh jeffrey getting beaten to a pulp by frank while she dances on the the, the roof of the car mm-hmm. you know that you know it's like and and you know he talks about how uh tarantino lifted that entirely for reservoir dogs yeah you know that whole sense of juxtaposition he you know literally is a lift from from lynch mm-hmm Right. I mean, really, or from you know, you can even go further back. Maybe even even related to Kubrick. Yeah, yeah. And if you think about Kubrick and you know, yeah, whether the it's the Clockwork Orange thing. or whether it's um, uh, Doctor Strangelove, mm-hmm. yeah, you yeah. have those same kind of goofy juxtapositions. Yeah, yeah. That are kind of terrifying. Yeah, yeah. Don't uh, th- there's no fighting in the war room. As uh, that <laughs> phrase goes, <laughs> well, yeah, I'm thinking about you know in the dropping of the bomb, and I'm trying to think of the song that, that's playing. For uh, that. we'll, yeah, we'll meet again, my friends. So. Yeah, and uh, we're in Clockwork Orange, you know, singing in the rain and the yeah, you know, the brutal uh, yeah, the rape and beating of that woman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just I, you know, it's it's incredibly, incredibly, you know, powerful and and Lynch. You know, once you you know, I think once you grasp onto the fact that Lynch is all about juxtaposition, you know, then all these things start to get a lot more interesting. You know, because for me, my favorite film he has, I guess, still is uh, Mulholland Drive. Interesting, yeah. I think I enjoy that one the most because that has that allows the most to be left to the imagination. Sure. For me. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I, I you know, the, in Twin Peaks again is something I loved. Although the first season is so different than the second because the second Certainly. he was he was much more disengaged but there are great there are fabulous moments in the second especially mm-hmm. like the diane keaton episode that she directed yeah, yeah. is a really nice episode yeah yeah 
This, uh, you know, did you, do you think that in the whole time, in the whole arc of his career, or at least, you know, that you, of what you have seen, do you feel like he, uh, has maintained his, his, um, his bite or his purity, or do you feel that, you know, I, I, I hear and read criticisms of, of how he's become kind of a forced, uh, weirdo. Like someone who might put something in a in a like you said in a juxtaposed fashion, just because that's kind of his his job now. Do you feel ever oh, feel that no, his mean, out, he, that I his output you're, you're is lazy? Like he's become a cliche of himself. You sure. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see that um, at all, or do you not? Do you not believe that? I don't know if there's any such thing as. I don't know if there's anything such thing as is, you know what I might describe as purity. Mm-hmm. I mean, for the most part, I know so these things for the most part are, are hard. They're yeah. hard work. Yeah. And I can't, you know, and, and what he does is not easy. You know, it's not like he's, it's not like he's, um, uh, Michael Bay. Yeah. And has an unlimited <laughs> budget and can, you know, play however he wants. And, you know, actually some, some things that Michael Bay, you know, has done is are, are you know, a little amusing, um, <laughs> but they're guilty pleasures. Sure, uh, at times. Have you um, have you seen? But, uh, but somebody that's working on the small scale, whether it's you know whether it's somebody like Jarmish, whether it's somebody like David Lynch, whether it's somebody like Hal Harley, you know, somebody who requires a lot of sweat and blood just to get sure. you know things made. Sure. I don't. I just. I can't see them just being you know being parodies of themselves. Right. You know, I, I, I guess I have to believe in the end that this is what engages him, and right. that's why he does it. Have um, you, were, were you, uh, did you, did you see Inland Empire? Watch some of it. I haven't actually sat down to watch it. Yeah. And, you know, it'll have its time. You know, there'll be a time <laughs> where I'm, like, ready. Well, I mean, you know, sometimes there's certain films I've seen, sure. you know, that I just haven't been ready to see, yeah. you know, just mentally. I'm just not in the place I, to see him. I'm, and, I'm and with I you. Miss. I'm with you 100%. I feel like uh, so much of a of the make or break for me for for some films is if I'm on the wavelength for it. Uh, right. Hype, hype, and and even my own expectations has so often destroyed my my experience. That you know, of mm-hmm. course, you have to see a movie. I, sometimes you have to see a movie multiple times to really gauge how you feel about it. But man, right. being on the wavelength of a movie—if you're not on that wavelength the first time you see it, that might be the last time you see it. You know. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, you just you just you know shut down. Or now, sometimes my initial reactions are bear true in the long run. Raging Bull, another film that puts <laughs> me to sleep. I mean, just puts me to sleep. I just. You know, it's for me. There's just nothing that happens there. It's yeah, just, yeah. You know, I agree. It's all the same thing, just repeated over and over and over again. Yeah. And it's like there is no cumulative effect. It's just the same thing repeated over and over and over again. Right. Um, and you know, you, you know, then you go on about my Arnold Schwarzenegger, Robert De Niro comparison. Oh, I, I love it. I love it. For those, for those who, <laughs> for those who don't know what we're talking about. So for for Stay Hungry, uh, Keith, who's who definitely doesn't shy away from making controversial or or hilarious statements, 
You you said that that Schwarzenegger in Stay Hungry certainly has more range. Were you talking about comic range than De Niro? Well, no, I was just saying just in if you look at his body of work, and you've got everything from Kindergarten Cop to uh, to Stay Hungry to The Terminator sure. to you know I'm thinking like okay what's the better what's the better more interesting film is it Terminator or is it Frankenstein. <laughs> I've never even watched Frankenstein, but but isn't Robert De Niro trying to do Arnold's Terminator and Frankenstein? <laughs> yeah, something like you know that. You know what yeah. I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. That's the, the Kevin Brownell film? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? And it, it, does he have, like, literally, you know, little to no speech in there? Yeah, something like that, yeah, I, I, if I remember yeah. correctly, yeah. And, I mean, you know, who thinks of Frankenstein? It's just, you know, <laughs> there's Robert De Niro can be very good, but... So much of the time, he's you know when you talk about you know somebody kind of playing themselves. Yeah. So much of the time, I find him just playing himself. Yeah. You know, we we're waiting for the Robert De Niro explosion. We're waiting mm-hmm. for this thing to happen. You know, there's these little things that you tick off on your your little list there sure. that you're waiting for De Niro to do. Sure. When it comes to Arnold, you never know what to expect. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I really would. You know, it would have been it would have been really interesting if they would have kept on that same wavelength of 70s films into the 80s. Yeah. It would have been really interesting to see what kind of things they could have cast Arnold in. Sure. Definitely. I mean, he's Conan, for gosh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the man literally has done, you know, he's done, you know, such a she. Oh, what about, um, gosh, he was in Running Man, too, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then what, um, what was the one that they just, oh, the one that just remade? They just remade. Um, you talking about yeah, the Conan uh, movie that they just remade? No, no, no. There was an Ar- there was an Arnold movie from like the eighties or early nineties. Oh, that oh, they oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Total Recall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, but it's, a, it's he's an intriguing guy, and I he mean, is. you know, and then when you put you when you add to it his real life of. He became governor of California. <laughs> I mean, that in itself is amazing when you think, you know, you're thinking, stay hungry, governor yeah. of California. <laughs> yeah. I feel, I feel like you would have a harder time. I think that you would have a harder time selling this before De Niro became what he is now. Like, 1997 and afterwards is kind of De Niro's, like, paycheck period. I don't know. I don't know if he plays more than maybe two speeds these days. And and nowadays, I think that you could probably, especially with Arnold Schwarzenegger making kind of his his comeback to film. I, I you know you see little shreds of of this charisma that you haven't seen in in years, and and it's kind of exciting to see Schwarzenegger come back to it. But De Niro has been basically doing his two speeds of. Of uh, of comedy and 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 kind of uh, quiet drama for the last twenty years. Well, I mean, you know, here's here's the ultimate trump card for Arnold. I just thought of Arnold had sex with the flying nun. <laughs> <laughs> well, that hasn't done anything to come close to that. <laughs> I think I think you sold it. I think that's perfect. <laughs> um. You know, talk, getting back to, to David Lynch, I know that we don't have okay. very much time to talk about David Lynch, and we could probably do a whole episode just in, in and of himself. But, you know, you, we did talk about uh, uh, Twin Peaks, and that's really kind of where my, um, 
my interest in him and kind of his his aesthetic and kind of his uh, his worldview kind of mm-hmm. kind of cemented itself with me, especially those that first season and and even that pilot episode. You know, you you just like we were talking about you know New Hollywood and you being in on the zeitgeist of that. You were certainly in the zeitgeist of 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 the water cooler show that uh, Twin Peaks became. Were you were you there uh, from the jump or did you see it like, you know, did you see it like starting three episodes into the first uh, season or what? You know, that's a good, you know, that's a really good question because because I remember the second season, you know, in some ways so vividly because um, we used to, I, there was a, uh, my buddy in Baltimore we used to tape the show because it happened like, uh, what was it? It was aired on Friday night, Saturday night in the second season, something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't remember now which. And so um, my buddy always worked on whatever night that the show aired, so we'd get together like the next day and watch it on tape. Nice. Always. Now, the first season, I, I probably in my, my gut feeling is I want to say I might have missed like the first episode, the first or second, and then kind of like jumped into it. Did they, I'm not sure that I saw it from the first episode on. The, the, did I didn't they, watch much TV back then. Did they broad, I mean, it was, it was strictly movies. Did they broadcast it like pilot and then next week's episode, or did they make an event of, of the pilot and then the, the series started, say, you know, in the fall or something like that? No, no, no. I, I, if memory serves me right, it just kind of jumped in with first episode. Oh, okay. I don't, I don't, um, I think the pilot thing was the whole thing that was done for European right. audiences. Right, the, when it made um, the movie, right. But I mean, it, if I'm not mistaken, I want to say that it aired on like Thursday night? Mm-hmm. Was it the first season? Where where literally that whole water cooler ph- phenomenon happened, where people would watch Twin Peaks and then talk about it the next day at work. Right. I mean, it was a big thing. It truly was a big thing. The second season wasn't like that at all because it kept getting moved around, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think it stayed exactly in the same time slot. And then it was put in some kind of weekend time slot, either on a, oh, no. either on um, a, either Friday or Saturday night, you know, the, the dead zone of TV. Yeah, right. And so, of course, nobody's going to work the next day. And they, they'd moved it around. They delayed the start of the season and all that stuff. So all the momentum that it gathered from the first season was really gone by the second season. Why? I mean, just just wasn't there. Why would they do that? Were they not fans of the, were like what was it? Was it a cri- a critical response that was not meshing? No, 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 with... no. I th- no, I think it was. I think it was just um, David Lynch was. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, that was when he was deep into production for Wild at Heart. Mm-hmm. So he was trying. They were trying to do Wild and Hard and Twin Peaks at the same time. Oh, and that's why I wasn't so as involved. And, you know, I think in many ways, the, the second season, you know, part of it is, is probably more reflective of, um, of uh, Mark, Mark Frost's sensibilities. Right. right. Who, who, if I remember, I, uh, what is it? Was it Saint? No, it wasn't. What was the show, the San Francisco cop show? Uh, that, that Frost was uh, Hill Street Blues. Hill, Hill Street Blues. Yeah, which was kind of, which was which was a pretty decent show. Mm-hmm. You know, which had some interesting sensibility about it. I mean, that I mean, the thing that was always unique, as I recall, about Hill Street Blues was its mixture of comedy and drama. Yeah, to kind of hit you in the gut. Yeah, 
Yeah. You know, they kind of throw you off guard and have you kind of chuckling at something, and then something bad dramatic would right. follow it. Right. And it would make the bad dramatic that much worse because you had just been amused. Right. Um, and they did that. They did that consistently, and they did that well. Um, what what sort of what I like about the second season is uh, so often the episodes are so um, there's so much of the individual directors marks. Mm-hmm. You know, like I made reference to the Diane Keaton one. Yeah. Which is really a cool episode. Yeah. It's, yeah. Just, it's just bizarre. It's it's just it's, bizarre. Uh, it's when uh, it's when uh, her cousin gets killed. Is that the the Diane Keaton episode? Well, the, part of it takes place in the bar, and there's all this weird stuff that keeps going on in the background and the Mounties and the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, uh, and, right. and there's, like, things that happen in twos, or, you know, groups of twos or threes or something that's uh-huh. always kind of going on. Right. It reminded me so much of... Uh, I can't remember that, that book that she did. I've got it buried away somewhere, a, a photography book that she did. It mm. reminded me so much of that and her sensibility that came out in that. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, I mean, each episode. I mean, the Lynch episodes are, are are real different. It's just each one has a little bit different feel, and I like both seasons for for different reasons. But the first one is far more consistent. Yeah, yeah, and I would say that kind of the the again the the thing that that attracts you or can attract someone to that first season is. It probably what the zeitgeist was and, and the atmosphere, the atmosphere of Twin Peaks, the the characters of Twin Peaks, not just the murder mystery. Once you've become so mission oriented, that second season at some point becomes very mission oriented, uh, maybe five or six episodes in. It feels like it's, you know, trying to build to the payoff. And mm-hmm. that first season is meandering. That first season is letting you not just know about this developing mystery and plot, but, you know, it's building a sense of dread. It's building, you know, a sense of, of, of the, what the town is, especially to, to, um, to uh, why am I blanking on his name? To uh, Leland Palmer? No, no to um, to the FBI agent. To um, oh, Dale Cooper. To Dale Cooper. You know, being an outsider, kind of, kind of seeing this, this really this quirky lifestyle that he is not, you know, or or we as viewers are not uh, uh, familiar with. But yeah, that second season is it, it, it. Sometimes, honestly, sometimes some of those episodes feel like they are. Uh, kind of forced weirdness to kind of mimic Lynch. Well, yeah, I mean, they they they, they very much might have been trying to mimic that style. I mean, the, you know, like, like you were kind of moving towards this. That, you know, the first season is really all about atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so she's dead. I mean, for the most part, we don't really care that much about it. You know, we're we're caught up in this 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 unique atmosphere. Right. And this and and all this crazy juxtaposition that's going on because. It's, like, completely timeless. Yeah. You know, it's like, I mean, that's the thing that Lynch does all the time is, like, he mixes up all these things so you you end up with something that's set in no specific time. Mm-hmm. You know, when you watch Lost Highway, it's it's very hard to put that in a time. Yeah, 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 I can see that. You know, or Wild at Heart, same thing. You know, it's that elements of the present, elements of the past. Uh-huh. you got a heavy, heavy metal. Kind of together. Yeah, heavy metal up against a, kind of a Western, almost. Well, and then, you know, and Rockabilly and Elvis and, mm-hmm. you know, and then, you know, some of the outfits and, 
Right. Um, you know, the, loca- the locations and everything. I mean, it's just, oh, Blue Velvet's another perfect example. Sure, of that. Yeah. I mean, another thing that's like, it seems like it's sort of set in the 50s, but it's not really set in the 50s. Yeah. You know, again, that's, you know, that has that same kind of quality. Yeah. I mean, that's, to me, that's kind of, you know, one of the real beauties about Lynch is the fact that, you know, that he can escape time so effectively. Mm-hmm. You know, and I can't think of, I'm trying to think if there's anybody else that I can think of that can quite do that as effectively as he can. Well, you know, know? it's interesting that you say that because that's, you know, that is consistently inconsistent about him too, is that he's able to do these things that are typically Lynchian, that we would quote unquote make Lynchian, but you also have things that, that he's like doing Dune or he's doing elephant man or the straight story which straight story is probably the the weirdest curveball for someone who is a lynch fan or coming into lynch it's it's so atypical of his style well you know but i you know (laughs) when you brought up twin peaks i was trying to think of which of lynch's films are the most like twin peaks and i was going to say the straight story yeah 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 okay because you have that same kind of set of Unusual characters. Sure. There's, there's a, and the thing that I really love about the straight story is that that very subdued dark underbelly is there. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, the people that have been through horrible things. Yeah, yeah. And the bits and pieces come out, and everything is never what it seems. Sure. You know, not at all. I, 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 I love how that film ends too. I just love how that film ends. I mean, I just. Yeah. I, I, I've. You know that that's one film that I could go to over and over again and never get tired of it. Yeah, there's it just a there's a simple beauty to that film that's just. And then you know there's where he breaks the you know again breaks the mold. Yeah. You know he's making a Disney film rated G. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, not not Lost Highway. You know which would which could have been rated X. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Here's the straight story, right? You know, essentially, I think right on the heels of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. If I'm not mistaken, I think one follows. You know, I think it follows Lost Highway. Yep. And again, Lost Highway is another film that you know took some time to appreciate. Sure. But it's like, you know, with him, you just got to be so aware, so open, so ready to just, you know, kind of work with it. You know, be attuned to the fact that you know things are askew. Little things get altered. Little things get changed. Yeah. You know, little things don't quite add up, and it's not meant to... It's, a med, it's meant to be almost like a jigsaw puzzle where the pieces don't quite fit together. Right. And they never will, no matter how hard you try. They're never going to completely fit together in some kind of total picture. Right. I find... You know, you're always going to have leftover pieces that you can't do anything with. Right. Again, I mean, that kind of... That really does work into what we were talking about with uh, 70s movies. Um, it's interesting too, you know, to hear you say that, uh, so much of it because of moving it around and everything that so many people kind of fell off going into the second season. I, I would think that the cliffhanger and if they were watching it for who killed, uh, Laura Palmer, that they would have stuck around at least to, to that reveal. But, uh, well, you know, but yeah. if I remember right, I'd have to look back at the history, but it seems to me that that. It got dragged out so long uh, yeah. before that that second season came out. You know, it's kind of like it, it's it's what in some ways what happened to me with Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. They dragged out that thing so long that I just lost interest. I I still haven't not watched those last 
eight episodes or whatever. It was. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, they. I they even split watched the a season. single episode of that last. You know, because they just dragged it on. I it just it got me so annoyed and angry because I really wasn't thinking it was going that place, going to a place that was very interesting anyway. I had been become disappointed in it. Oh, interesting. Um, interesting. How, how so? so? You know, what, what was disappointing to you about it? I felt like it became like Scarface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. You know, they started with this original, this original concept that it was really intrigued me about this. You know, the school teacher whose life was basically screwed. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in every way possible, and so he just throws it all away and you know says hell with it and you know I got to survive. Sure. And 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 goes completely, you know, off the grid, you right. know, so to speak. Right. Well, and then car- it just became, that, that, show, that show to me became kind of a caricature of itself. Yeah. You know, it just became, oh, well, we'll do this crazy thing just because we do this crazy thing, or, you know, he's going to go crazy. You know, it's like, it, it, it went to me in such a predictable direction that, you know, I just, I wasn't that, all that intrigued. Versus, say, you know, the show that I was real hot on this, this last couple of years has been the killing, yeah, which I think is 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 pure art in my mind. Um, I'm just you know I'm I was just stunned by that show, how good that show I thought got. And to me, that was about as close as you could get to '70s filmmaking in the killing, where you have episodes where pretty much nothing would happen, right? Except the atmosphere, right? Slow burn, you know, just dripping with atmosphere and. You know, it's like they weren't scared to do it, and I thought that they, I I love the beauty of that that they'd yeah. be willing to have episodes where very little, you know, happened plot wise, but you know, tons was going on, you know, just around all the edges. Everything was happening around the edges. Right. Not what you know wasn't about what you saw. Everything was about what you didn't see. And there are you know, they, there's not many films that really revolve around you know, because if it revolves around what you don't see, you use your imagination. Sure. And if you're using your imagination, you're creating something much more horrible yeah. than whatever it is that they might show you. Yeah. So, I mean, that's why, you know, Jaws was much more powerful until you saw the stupid shark. Yeah, very true. Very true. <laughs> I, I mean, we... you saw the shark and the, 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 you know, the, you know, it's like, oh, that's it. <laughs> well, well, we talk about, you know, we talk about um, almost not supernatural, but psychological horror of, of dread. Mm-hmm. And, right. um, the, you know, we've talked about Seven. That's the dread there because you can put together puzzle pieces of how the killer acted or how the killer, you know, cut off his wife's head at the end, you know. And you don't right. see any of that, but that dread is just, it's in the surface of everything. It's in the soil of everything. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, to me, that's, that, that's when you get... The really truly powerful filmmaking is yeah. when you, you know, end up in that kind of scenario where you are, you know, having to use your imagination. You're filling out the picture. Right. I'm and really. So, the most dangerous monster, you know, always is the monster that, when the monster is the closest to the edge of the frame, or when you feel that it's closest to the edge of the frame, mm-hmm. that's when you get the best horror. Sure. It's not when you actually see it. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Usually, when you see it, it it almost is always disappointing. It's uh, it's anonymity, you know, outside the that that corner, outside that edge. You're right. Well, I mean, you know, and and you know, think about Lynch and the you know the opening of Blue Velvet and finding the ear. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, that's that's uh, you know that you could you could go on you could write you know you could write for pages upon pages just about <laughs> that whole scene of finding the ear. Yeah. Well, you know, I'd really, really be interested in what you think of uh, True Detective when you get around to it. Yeah, well, like I said, I'm, I'm very looking forward to that. There's, I'm thinking about dumping cable, and it's like, you know, it's like, but the Americans are starting up again. Oh, yeah, I like true. the Americans a yeah. lot. Yeah, yeah. And Justified is still going on. Yeah, yeah. And I like Justified. A, there's another great show. Mm-hmm. That's a 70s show. Yeah. You can have whole episodes of that where nothing happens. Yeah, yeah. Except the interplay between the principals. Uh-huh. Absolutely. And it's like it's all setting up for something that might happen three episodes later. Mm-hmm. But I mean, talk about some great characters. Oh yeah, definitely. Wow, great, great stuff. Hey, uh, Keith, I know uh, we have gone on uh, quite a bit, so you know, thank you so much for making the time to to talk to me and and to be on the show. I really, really, really appreciate it. Well, I very much enjoyed this conversation. It's been a long time since I've had a in-depth conversation like this yeah yeah we'll do it again you know i promise that that i'll bring you on again and we'll, we'll have another deep conversation about something we'll find something to talk about well I, I imagine too when you when you go back and listen to this you know there'll probably be things that that jump out in retrospect yeah that might Absolutely. Uh, that might form the basis for uh something down the it, down the line it's always how it happens exactly i'll have uh i'll be editing something and i'll think oh well we could have sp- spun this out into another conversation about this but yeah you know as much as as we uh have filled this episode it has been chock full it was interesting to to hear about your your history and your life and something that you know i i don't think i ever got a chance to talk to you outside of class and uh, you know, uh, being in the encapsulation of of a class for New Hollywood or or David Lynch, it's certainly something I wanted to to explore more. So, yeah, we will do it again soon. Thank you so much for uh, for taking the time, and you know, I hope that you had fun. Thankfully, my phone didn't die too. <laughs> <laughs> you, te- you tested its limits here on one charge. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Have a good one, sir. I really appreciate it. Have a okay. good one. Okay, you too. Okay, see ya. Talk to you. Bye-bye.